is about to begin. And welcome to a new edition of Third Degree Burn. We have a special Halloween edition for you tonight. I'm Kirk Greenfield, and I'm joined by Tim Elliott. Say hi, Hello. Tim. Hello. And we also have Brian Hughes. Hello. <laughs> I knew we'd have a Halloween character in there someplace. <laughs> uh, we're going to be taking a look at some of John Byrne's earliest Marvel work, uh, all with a Halloween theme today. So uh, we're going to be sharing a couple of different works, some shorter than others, but this will be an interesting show for the season. So if you're into Halloween and or John Byrne, you come to the right place. Tim? Yep. We are, uh, and I think you can correct me on this, Brian, we, we are going to be covering uh, from giant size. is it giant Size Dracula or giant Size Tomb of Dracula? It's just giant Size Dracula, giant, isn't giant, it? giant Size Dracula, number five. Number five, and it's... Uh, it's there's the main story, then this is kind of a backup story or a short story in the back uh, called Dark Asylum, and it's about eight or nine pages, I think. Um, and it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's Burns' first Marvel work, yes, correct? that's correct. Okay. And, and know, we are, the, the Giant Size Dracula number five uh, is more of an anthology book where it's got a bunch of different stories, mm -hmm. not necessarily all Dracula stories. Like, this one isn't necessarily a Dracula story. It's so it's, it's kind of like what you would see in, say, creepy or eerie books that were published back in the day uh, by Warren Very Publishing. much like that. And it, right. it, it, you know, it's even telling that the anchor on it is uh, Rudy Nebris, which is he was huge at, at those books. Of course, that was all black and white, where this was for color. The black and white stuff uh, takes a different type of hand than what you get. I, in I, yeah, and I could see this as I could see this easily being a black and white um, story. We are also going to be covering. This is something you dug up, Brian. I was not aware of it. It's from a uh, again like an anthology horror magazine called Nightmare, uh, issue twenty, and it's a little two-page story called The Castle. Yeah, this was um, interesting also in that uh, yeah, Alan Hewitson, who was the editor of the book. I mean, he basically he was the driving force on it, but he was basically putting, trying to put out a magazine much like eerie and creepy and 1984 and all those other uh, books that were put out by Warren publishing. And so you had anthology stories in this, of you know, different variety. Um, and this was, as far as I could tell, based on Mike's amazing world, this was Burns first published work. Um, you know, real professional work. Uh, right. I, I know there was a lot of foom and, and other stuff that he did and those um, those other things that were published uh, in a college that uh, 
had a little bit of, of, of uh, professional flair, but the, I think this is the very first actual published, um, you know, mainstream work. Though I don't know that that Nightmare is necessarily considered mainstream, but it had like 26 issues. Uh, this is from issue 20, which came out in uh, June of 74. Yeah, so, that's right, because that's 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 before his Charlton work, I think. Mm-hmm. And certainly before the uh, Marvel stuff, but I. So I, this is we're looking at early. Uh, uh, we're looking at some early, early burn stuff, and mm-hmm. didn't we try to record, or did we cover this? I know we talked about recording this uh, Dracula story way back we've, when we kind of first started the, the 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 show. We've talked about it a couple times. We've never uh, done it, though. but we've never done it. You know, just because of uh, how the art was handled, I think that's that's the only thing we really did. You know, just basically because I think that once we took a look at the story. We're just like, there's not really a whole lot of burn art here to, to look at. But, you know, it's like reading the story and, and, and going through it, uh, I thought it was actually interesting. And there's very interesting and telling text in the story, even though Byrne didn't write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there, there's something interesting about it uh, that uh, you'll find out as we get there. But, uh, no, it's it's uh, these, these are both interesting pieces. Of course, they're both uh, uh, supposed to be from... I don't know if you want to call it scary type stories, because uh, the castle uh, story is you know more of a, a twilight zoney type thing. Well, I guess both of them are kind of twilight zoney type stories, but uh, still uh, fun stuff. Um, well, they're very much. We start with. Uh, we'll start with the castle. Okay. But uh, they're they're both very much in the vein of if you ever if you've ever watched uh, if you're familiar with the the uh, British studio called Amicus, they're no. kind of a rival to Hammer. They weren't quite as big. But they would put out anthology movies, hmm. kind of like Creepshow, yeah, you know, okay. for the modern, similar to that. It's not, it's not, it's more gothic horror. It's not, uh, you know, it's not slasher. It's not bloody. It's more psychological uh, type stuff, especially. And, and the, 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 the castle is because it's, so, it's so short and abrupt. Uh, you know, it's two pages. It's like. Uh, I think you're going to give us a dramatic reading, aren't you, Brian? Well, yeah, I think I'll ju- we'll just go ahead and do the whole whole story. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to come up with uh, two voices, three voices, really. A Rod Serling kind of voice and one other. Anybody else having the yeah. interference? I'm hearing yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know. What I think it's... John's coming on. John, <laughs> hey! Oh, there he is. John. Oh wow. Okay. Like he sounds like he's possessed. Is that creepy Halloween voice, John? <laughs> if it is, it's very effective. I'm, I'm Hi, guys. Okay, hey, there he is. Okay, what was that creepy voice then? That was just Ghosts and Chains. That's right. Okay, because I heard, get out. That's uh, what it sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it sounded like. Yep, definitely didn't have that. All right. Well, we just covered the two stories, John. They're both very brief, so... Uh, oh, all right. No, well, <laughs> just kidding. I wanted hey, well, to ask. Um, but, I'm looking at Tomb of Dracula. Where, how is this a John Byrne thing? I, I, he's not no, listed it's in It's not here. Tomb of Dracula. It's giant-sized Dracula number five. Right. I don't see him listed in here. It's uh, one of the latest... It's like the fourth story, I think, in the book. And it's called Dark Asylum. And... Mm-hmm. In the credits on the page itself, it just says burn. Yeah, that's a John let, Let's take a look at Castle first, though. Yeah. Um, and before we do that, I wanted to ask Tim: Are you doing your standard Holly uh, Halloween uh, decorations this year? 
I've done, I've posted, I posted some on Facebook. I, because of where we live and the yard, limited yard, I, I don't, don't have nearly as much. And I just didn't feel like digging a lot of the stuff out. Um, I did build a new reaper that I bought just a, I bought just a skeleton from, I think Home Depot. And I put a, I bought some kind of black velvety cl- uh, cloth from Joanne's mm-hmm. and made a kind of a cloak on him. And then I put, uh, made a stand so it looks like he's hovering off the ground and I have a red light inside his chest. It lights up his chest and then he's got a green light underneath him. It looks like some kind of ethereal light where it's making him float. And he's got, he's holding his lantern. So Cool. Cool. We, um, we didn't get a chance to decorate this year. There's just so much that's going on. Um, Christopher, my son has been, uh, uh, fighting. It looks like asthma and uh, had basically a low blood oxygen level, but he seems to be turning around and may actually get to go back to school Tuesday when the new nine-week starts up. They're doing nine-week runs instead of six-week runs now. Oh. That's weird. Is uh, that going to affect his – wasn't he playing football? Or he he's, he was he's, playing some he's now managing the team. He's not um, – okay. he's, he's, he's Clark Kent from you know the Christopher <laughs> Reeve movie. Uh, he, he's yeah, he's not uh, not not doing that anymore. Uh, just his, his mind wasn't in the game, yeah. you know. And so well, the coach really likes him, says he's really smart. So he asked him if he wanted to stay on in any capacity, and so he took that. And it's basically equipment manager. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll just tell him not the don't let those the the football players knock over his bench and spill all his yeah, hard work. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. I, I showed him that scene. I said, "Don't let this happen to you." And he goes, "I can kick the football like that." Yeah, <laughs> and he's now actually bigger than me in every. He is taller than me. He weight outweighs me by about fifty pounds. He's fourteen. It's not supposed to happen yet. <laughs> well, sorry, Brian. Anyway, um, yeah, no, but uh, the 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 thing is, you know, it's like normally for Halloween, and I think I've talked about this before. We actually serve hot dogs uh, to the neighbors. Now we didn't do it last year with the the pandemic in full swing, and. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to do it this year because uh, my wife is uh, working a new job, and she will uh-huh. actually be working on Halloween. And you don't know how to boil hot dogs. <laughs> okay, anybody that, that is self-respecting does not boil hot dogs when you're serving them to people. Okay? <laughs> okay. You grill them. Okay? And that's oh. not barbecue, folks. No matter what Paul Spataro says. No, that's not barbecue. I, I still prefer to boil a hot dog. That's still my preferred method of eating it, even if it's grilled. Well, I like it boiled. I mean, I like to grill the onions and everything and all that all together, you know. And, and well, anyway, but, you know, we've been doing that for the last couple of years where we were serving hot dogs to all the neighbors. And now, you know, we just gather a crowd every Halloween outside our house. Yeah. Uh, my father-in-law acquired, uh, I don't know how, a uh, nice industrial popcorn maker, though. Wow, And nice. so uh, we're going to serve popcorn. Christopher and I will serve popcorn out this Halloween. Cool. Christopher's really hey, excited about that. Kirk, are you gonna you gonna uh, make your candy shoot again? As a matter of fact, I asked my daughter. I uh, didn't realize that you were aware of that, but yes, uh, apparently the family has been collecting two-liter bottles, and they cut the, the the bottleneck out and the bottom out, and then they use uh, you know like sealing tape, and they create a long tube uh, to to drop from the second story window. The, or the the porch balcony, the uh, the candy, and it slides down and flies out to shoot at the bottom. So there you go. Yeah, it was a hit last year, and I guess they're doing it again this year. So I think the answer is yes. Good. 
Now, I, I normally stock up on a lot of the good candies from the, the main stores. You know, every time I go to the store for anything, I'll just grab several bags to prep. Because I've got a huge wash tub base and what I, what I usually call my beer buddy. That's what I'd fill with beer and ice when we're having a party or something. But fill it we up had with one, candy. I, but, I think we had one trick-or-treater last year. So oh, we're, we, we're not going to buy a lot of candy because we may have more this year. There are a lot of kids. I don't know. We still have a lot. It's definitely going to be busier this year than it was last year. Um, yeah. But, you know, the thing and my father-in-law, again, you know, he he runs a couple jobs and, and he acquires things through those uh, those jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came home with about six boxes of 100 packages each of the fruit gummies. Uh, I think like Welch's fruit gummies or Kirkland or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the fruit gummies. So along with all the candy we're giving out, we're going to be giving out a crap ton of fruit gummies. <laughs> People are going to be getting big yep. handfuls of, of uh, stuff this year. That'll That'll be fun. John, do you guys get trick or treaters? We get a few until about like 7, 6.30 or 7, and it's usually just tiny little kids. Yeah. But not very many. Um, so, unfortunately. I was going to tell you, Brian, be careful with that industrial popcorn popper. Mm-hmm. In our town, we've had, at one point, we had three theaters, and two of them burned uh, bad enough that they closed down or, or became a a uh, Taco Bell um, completely remodeled and changed, and they they tracked the source down to the popcorn popper. That the uh, the heating elements mm-hmm. in some of the older ones are defective. So this this machine uh, was built within the last five years. Okay, and just want to warn works, you. He works basically for a school district, and because of the way their budgets run, they recycle equipment really really quick. Wow. And okay. so it required cleaning to to get it up to spec. And so we did all the cleaning and scouring of everything in it. And now it's like new. So, I'm, you know, I'm happy. But uh, let's uh, uh, go ahead, I guess, and, and get to the books at hand. You want me to uh, want me to read this with you, Brian? I will. Uh, you want to read the voices? I can be, be the narrator uh, if you want. Oh yeah, that's great. Okay, I'll be. Uh, I'll let you be. You want to be the 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 planner, or do you want to be the uh, the guy on the uh, bulldozer? Oh, I want to be the guy on the bulldozer. I figured you want to be him. Okay, I'll be the the planner, the guy with the sunglasses. It looks a little. He looks a little bit like uh, uh, Charlton uh, Heston. No, no, no. I was thinking the way Burn drew uh, the guy from the Is Avengers. Guy uh, Rich, yeah. Guy Rich, yeah. Is, yeah. It's kind of like a cross between Guy Rich and Nick Fury. Uh, yeah. let, me, let me go ahead yeah. and get the credits and stuff out of the way. Now, this, of course, came from uh, the magazine Nightmare, number 20, uh, by Skywall Publishing. It's got a cover date of August 1974. The approximate on-sale date is June 1st, 1974. And you know, like we said, it was, appears to make it Burns' first published work. Uh, he couldn't confirm that himself. I'd asked, uh, I'd, I'd asked uh, John Byrne about that. And uh, he, he just, he said all that stuff is really sketchy in his memory. He just doesn't honestly uh, remember much of anything. Um, and he did he also didn't say much about the other story we're going to cover, other than, you know, he doesn't recognize his art in it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, let me go back, though. That's uh, got a, pay, a cover price of 75 cents, a page count of 64 the um, title of the story is The Castle. It's two pages, 
uh, the writer on it appears to be the editor, Al Hewitson, uh, who wrote most of the stories in these, but did not include the writer credit on the pages. The pencil, of course, is uh, John L. Byrne. The inker is Duffy Vahland. That's Vahland, V-A-O-H-L-A-N-D. I yeah. seem to recall that name somewhere, but I, I just can't Voland. place it. Voland. Yeah, Voland. Voland. But I, 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 I seem to have read that name before at some point. Yeah. I just don't, uh, can't, can't figure out. And uh, the story, I, I mean, I'll give a rough overview on it, and then we'll go ahead and go through the, the, the story itself. But, you know, basically you've got some construction workers with all sorts of equipment uh, that are tasked with knocking down a castle in the New England area and that uh, nobody seems to know much about its history and all that's lost to antiquity. And they just can't seem to knock it down. And then they decide to use explosives and uh, you know wrap the place up in dynamite and TNT. And when they blow it up, the... Stop. What? Don't spoil it. Okay, let's okay, get... okay. Right. Well, let's, let's just... You're okay. giving away my <clears throat> part, too. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Do you want the uh, Do you want to read this in the order of the page, or do you want me to bookend it at the top and the bottom with the uh, narrator? I, I think you should book. It, yeah, go ahead and bookend it. Even though the the panels up top, you should read that first. I think. Okay. <clears throat> in my best Rod Sterling voice, <clears throat> consider if you will. In some northeastern state of these United States stands a castle one that has endured all the elements of nature of nearly 400 years. It's now on public land, and its history and ownership are long forgotten. It's being torn down to make room for a speedier road from Boston to Providence. And it's a shame, a crying shame, for this old place has a purpose, as we shall learn in the castle. Uh, you know, planner there, right? Uh, you, uh... Tell me, how are we going to do it? Uh, it's a shame we've got to do it at all. I think we should preserve it somehow, so it can be rebuilt somewhere else. I don't care. That's up to you. All I want to know is how we're going to tear down this castle. The state highway is about a mile away. They'll be caught up to, uh, to this point in about two weeks, and that castle's got to be out of here. This is weird, Peterson. We've had a pneumatic drill pumping all, all, all morning, and we can't even dislodge the foundation. Doesn't make any sense. Usually all we got to do is lean on one of these old buildings and it just collapses. We got to try something else, Vince. And so you, you can actually see in the panel where they've got a, a pneumatic, a, a couple other workers got the pneumatic drill, but nothing's happening. And then the next panel, you see them slamming at it mercilessly with wrecking balls. With a big whang. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's like the damn castle's alive. Like it has a mind of its own. It just doesn't want to die. We're going to have to bomb it. We've tried everything else. The highway's going to be up here in a few days. It's already holding up the graders. It's a shame. A real shame. Such a beautiful castle. Beautiful, maybe. But also weird. We had no choice. The amount of TNT we plant in there will shatter the windows for miles around. We simply have no choice. And so you see all the guys laying the dynamite and TNT about this place. And then the next panel. Kirk, you want to try that, what that word, I, I can't, I can barely make it out. What, karump? Karump. 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 And I think you're, yeah, that's some sort of 
thing. The castle was a prison. Oh, my God. My God! Some months later, after they'd re-erected the living castle prison, after they'd rerouted the highway around the hillcock with the monster therein, the officials reflected for a while on what the thing was, and the answers they came up with summed up a total zero. Whatever it was, it was indestructible. Whatever it was, it had better been left alone. So when you drive around a little hill with a castle somewhere in New England, remember it within and keep driving. That was great, Kirk. That was, that was awesome. fun. Now, that, was the, that was a little, little shatnery, too. Yeah, I, I think that, <laughs> I like know, it. while we did read the story, we really didn't, I, I guess, relay the imagery as well. The, the very first panel, of course, is the two construction workers. Uh, the, there's one kind of a, a, a heavy set. Uh, dude that, that that I read sitting on top of the the machinery in a very relaxed position while uh, the one that Tim read is looks like he's uh you know got the Captain Kirk shirt on and uh, he's a hard driving guy yeah he's and, and he's got something. a cigar in his mouth and gla- they both wear dark sunglasses but he's kind of like a cross between Nick Fury and and Guy Rich um, and of course they're both wearing like the leather gloves. And the one guy, of course, is looking at the uh, the plans where you see this huge, what looks to be a actually beautiful castle in the background. That would be such a waste to have to destroy something like that. Of course, this could be that that same home that uh, that rapper bought that now he can't get rid of. It's probably photo reference. He bought it for like fifteen million, and now he can't get rid probably of it at all. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. <clears throat> Much for that investment property. Yeah. Then of course the next image, like you know, like I said earlier, was the the two guys standing there while a couple other guys were trying to uh, pound at the place with the pneumatic drill. It looks like the same drill they used to break into the Nakatomi vault. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then of course, it, it, I, I guess it's supposed to be representative of like one ball hitting the building several times. I think it's like it's vibrating. Yeah. It's it's bouncing off. Yeah. And and not not doing anything while the two workers are sitting there. Uh, uh, just commenting on it. They look so familiar, yet I can't place them. Yeah, one of the, one guy's really pudgy and heavy, and I, I see Doctor Bill in him. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not. I did just. That's what comes to mind. I see Ron Jeremy in him. Okay. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. Oh, we know what Tim's now, been watching. Is off time. It's kind of like this. You know, I, I don't blame Burn on this. I think that they probably could have had a couple, like, like more narrative boxes, other than just the two ones that Kirk read, because you know, you sit there, you see them talking about, you know, as they're laying the dynamite, and next you just see what I'm assuming is supposed to be the dynamite explosion that destroys the castle, and then the biggest panel in the the whole thing is, you know, the two guys in the foreground reacting to what apparently is a giant molten creature pulling itself out of the ground. I just want yeah. to understand, if this thing is indestructible, it's everything they say, how were they able to keep it there until they could question. build the castle <laughs> around it? How'd they get it back? You know, uh, you know, did the castle have some kind of a spell on it? I mean, it's, it, this story really almost is is too little. If you want more, I want some more information about what's going on. Yeah, and I think it's like the the they they told Burn you got two pages to to do this. This is the basic story, and then we'll script it afterwards. And you know, it's just like they didn't. It, it, Burn's art is is you know so 
filling of every space of the panels and detailed that they really didn't have a place for the word word balloons and and any other notes that they wanted to throw in there. So I think they were reticent about putting more narration and covering up what is, you know, yeah. again, as early as this is. Um, it, and the art has a, has a tendency to be a little bit more cartoonish than what Byrne is, has come known to draw. But this, a little is, bit. this is really polished, as far as I could say. You know, as far it's, as... it's nice. It's it, And I see more Byrne in this than we're going to see in the, the Dracula story we're going to cover next. Absolutely, because yeah. this looks more like... Probably he's not trying to follow a style. He's well, like, just and draw whatever you want to do. The anchor Duffy Volland, I think, was very faithful to to his his pencil. The burn stuff, yeah, because you can see it. Yeah, because so, when, I, when I see that creature that's coming out of the ground, it reminds me of something I saw in, like, Doomsday Plus One and some of Burns, um, you know, early, early works in commission, not commissions, but his early sketches and such. I would almost say this seems a little more polished than Doomsday Plus One. Well, yeah, and that, that and that comes down to this being in a black and white book. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know that that you know your pencils get a lot more your your pencils and inks get a lot more shading and and you just get to see a lot more of the art this way. When you're doing a four color book, it it detracts from yeah. from that. Are you seeing a lot of zipatone in this too? Um, there is something I don't I can't I think the the, he, the foreman. I think he used zipatone for the guy's arm hair. Maybe. Rather than. No, that looks that looks a little that looks a little reminiscent of how he would do Wolverine's hairy yes, arms yes, uh, you're later. Right. But his shirt looks like it looks like cross hatching, yeah. but it looks too too uh, refined. I think that's yeah. zipatone, and I think the ground underneath the drill, the bottom yes. of the panel, is zipatone. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it looks more like almost like ink wash. Like we were, did you see the guys planting the dynamite? Yeah, that looks like. And, a, and then uh, down like below a, the creatures that's coming out of the ground, you see the other guys running. That's yeah. some kind of zipatone, yeah. yeah. But even and the creature in the, lettering, is, in the lettering of the explosion, the kawam. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The bottom right panel, the last panel in the story, which in fact is a long shot of the um, area. Yeah. Yeah, the area, the the uh, the geography of the area. You see in very weak detail. You see a, uh, the castle or the centerpiece that's in the middle of a plot of land, but very clearly you see what is a highway describing a large arc around the outside. <laughs> yeah, around it. And I got to tell you, a couple times when I've been driving, I've noticed a highway that has taken a large curve, a swing around something, and I've always wondered what in the world was there that they had to make such a good swing around. Sometimes it's like it's a, uh, you know, it's a power plant. Sometimes it's a, uh, uh, what's the word that I want, uh, a nuclear research facility. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's just kind of interesting to see who had more more say in uh, who owned the land when you see that sort of thing. But it's very clear that the, the road had, describes this large arc, a semicircle all the way around the castle property. Yeah. I think it's creature coming out of the ground is, I'd say a lot of uh, Wrightson influence in there. It looks very Bernie Wrightson. looks like he would, the way he would draw kind of zombies or muck monsters or things like that. that yeah. It's half melting and it's, yeah. uh, the face is distorted. You can make out a couple of eyes and some teeth in what's a distorted mouth. And it's kind of up on its elbows. It's hoisting itself out of the pit. Um, uh, sort of like an early 
Jack Kirby monster from Fantastic Four one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of. It's got, <laughs> sort of a it's got the flesh falling mm-hmm. off of it. If it is yeah, flesh, just dripping. Dripping. Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was flesh or if that was supposed to be like soil and the from weird, coming up out of the ground. The I weird couldn't tell. Kirby crackle kind of look on the right side mm-hmm. above the construction worker. I guess it's like his arms as he's pulling himself out. Yep. Again, yeah, how did how that how they were able to get it back into the hole and, and cover it up with another castle? I don't know. Yeah. Does your a- version of it have an odd line that's cutting the page not in half but in third in the bottom third above the creature's eyes? No. Oh, I no. see. I yes, it's very faint. I wouldn't have noticed it if you hadn't called attention well, to it. The thing is, like, if if you're looking at the magazine version, it, it's the PDF or whatever that is. It's yeah, it seems to have that in there. But um, I've got like other copies of it that I'm looking at. Just you know, each image as a page, or each page is an image, and it's not like that at all. It's it, but um, the art, huh. yeah, it's uh, interesting. Oh, and so that guy's name is Russell. Is that Russell or Rosselli? Just Russell, right? R O S S E L L. On the helmet there in the next to last panel. Oh, I see. Oh. It, it's uh, harder to read on the on the um, the PDF. Yeah, R O S E L L. E L L. Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. I probably, thought it was going to be Exxon. Probably the company name. Roxxon. Roxxon. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Haven't been rocks on yet. Yeah. So you guys talked about earlier, like no text boxes. Uh, I think his work, his panels are so good. Yeah. You don't need it. So where are you going to put? And the man planted dynamite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not needed. Nothing's yeah. needed. And knowing that it was just two pages and that, so it'd be a very tight number of panels. And you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, he filled them up. So he put all the detail in there you needed. Um, to see the story go along. So we don't need a lot of text panels, I don't think. I mean, not in this version of two two panels that just uh, – or two two pages that are just kind of dropped in. I wonder what he got paid, like 10 bucks a page maybe back in 1974 or three? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's hey, that was question. enough for a pizza. <laughs> a whole dinner, a whole date for you and your yeah. date back then. Yeah. Well, for a two-page story, this has got a lot in it. It's it's definitely worth looking at. Um, pretty cool. I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I I got a billion questions about the creature. I want to know about the creature. I'm afraid though Al Hewittson is, is uh, long since passed away. I think the next time you go and see John Byrne, you should ask him those questions. You should pepper him with those questions. How did they put him back in? What kind of a creature is it? Is he from the Nagari? What happened to him? Blubber. You should just pepper him. And then, this, this is then he'll negative. ban you and block you forever because you're... He will love you for it. <laughs> yeah. I saw him once where he, he described fans that do that. Uh, how, how does Johnny Storm fly through the guts of a, a jet engine? And, and how, why does Franklin always say him the same age? All he says is, it's comics next <laughs> yeah yeah and that's just what you gotta do yeah now al hewittson as i see uh he was born in 46 and he passed away at the age of 57 in 2004 so it's probably a lot this could be his next elswin project finish this story <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I, I don't think oh so. now we know where that is that's 100 miles north of westchester new york yep mm. Ah, oh, this guy's a mutant. Oh. It's Krakatoa. <laughs> wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. Is he one of the mutant Nagari? 
or do you even know what I'm talking about there? That's what we were asking. Mm. <laughs> that, of course, is uh, a, a, a uh, point to Burns' latest X-Men Elsewhen, which uh, is getting awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, I gotta, I, gotta, I, I, I can, gotta get caught up. I can tell you, you know, just what the story's about because Burns teased it a couple no. times. Yes, no. yes, we can. No, no spoilers. No well, spoil it. I have not read it. No, no. I, all I'm saying Two is, of that, us is, haven't is read that Burn has teased this on his website. <laughs> la, 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 okay, la, la. I'll shut up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they'll well, see it. Okay, well, hey, we so could, let's go ahead. This type of story was fun when I was um, 9, 10, 11 years old. I love these little short, you know, horror stuff like that. So uh, the fact that it was two pages, you know, just kind of helped you move through the book. It was cool mm-hmm. um, when I was that age. Um, I don't I don't remember reading this, this particular story, but I do kind of remember getting like those black and white nightmare magazines or House of Mystery occasionally. And uh, the little short stuff. So sometimes, you know, it's it. You have the questions like, "Where's the monster from? How they put it back in?" But uh, it's just the nightmare style of story that I think just kind of works. You know, you just kind of leave it at that, and uh, yeah. it, it has its own end. And you're like, okay, and then you move on. It. But so it, I, I it, it's a fun story. It makes the mind work, though. It it, it does. Yeah. You, it's provocative to to sit there and go, "Wow, what would that thing be? Would it stand up and walk the earth?" Or you know, and of course, you got to wonder how the hell did they beat it? And you know, there's some kid or somebody that read that, and they went and did their own story of how it was beat. Because I, if I, any, my son's reading it, stuff right now, and he keeps doing that. Well, it's very Twilight Zone. Yeah. Now, Twilight Zone would would kind of would they would tell the story, but then leave it hanging. You know, you would you if you to kind of come up with your own uh, conclusion or. To yeah. your point, John, it makes you think. Like, well, yeah, no, you know, Henry and it stays. It stays with you. You're right. Yeah. Now, you know, when I was a kid, I never graduated to the black and white Warren stuff. For some reason, I always viewed those over there on the other uh, the magazine rack as adult and typically pornographic. So I <laughs> I never looked at or touched them, which is a shame because I didn't have that evolution that you did, John, to to go to enjoy these for the simple pleasure that they are. They were just foreign to me, and so I stayed rooted in the superheroes until finally I burned out, but that's another story. So I didn't have this experience, and I I, I think this type of story and presentation is a level above the mentality and the, the ability for the average kid's comic reading experience. This is more than an adolescent. This is a, uh, you know, a teen, young adult um, meal. Well, it's it's in that you because know, when the in the early seventies when the the comic code re, you know kind of relax released their or relaxed their uh, their stance on horror when suddenly the place was flooded with horror. So you got the Frankenstein book, you got the Werewolf by Night, you got all the horror anthologies that were coming out, and that's uh, the Tomb of Dracula, so that you could sh- you could show all that stuff. So that's right in that vein of uh, that scare the kids, you know. And it was, and it, some of it was. Sometimes I, I remember some of those stories are, to your point, Kirk. They're a little more uh, adult. I mean, it's it yes. would be some scary stuff. Well, that's yeah, that's a good mean, way to describe it. When you look at the the stories that are in like the the Warren Publishing books, eerie, creepy, Vampirilla. I mean, Vampirilla is a very um, 
just yeah, it's very sex related in in it, it it just sells the sex and yep. you know Frank Thorne did um his uh I don't know if Gita was a rip off of Red Sonja or if Red Sonja was a rip off of Gita but if you look at those stories um you'll you'll see that the two are very parallel but it is definitely uh you know, near near pornographic or actually pornographic in its presentation um of course, this book, Nightmare, as well as all the Warren Publishing books, are actually out on, is it archive.org? I think it's archive.org. You archive. can read a lot of them Yeah, and so free, you yeah. can read any and all of them uh, for free. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, there's just so much cool media out there. The Epi, uh, the Creepy, Eerie, and 1984 books, and 1994, um, were really, really interesting in what they presented, uh, you'll see a lot of the the well-known comic book artists and writers that uh, we're familiar with doing a lot of stories in those things. And some of them are, I mean, they're mostly short stories, four-page, eight-page, even two-little-page gems like this. Uh, and, you know, they're they're interesting. And so there's just a, a, a gigantic wellspring of material there that if you're bored, you can go in there and just read a quick story. And, and it's, you know, there's a lot of Twilight zone kind of stuff in there. Uh, of just a, and and you know a, a lot of even space stuff you know science fiction uh, type stuff. I remember yeah. one story that was really cool where they um, had found these these living jelly creatures that um, if you you know basically there was two types there was with brain and without you could see through them they're like jello but moving and they were using them for TV commercials for stuff. And so they had like a peanut butter and jelly, like the the grape jelly. They were doing a commercial for that because it looked a lot like that. And they wound mm. up shipping out, jarring up and shipping out all of the the jelly creatures out, the ones that were actually eat people since they didn't have brains in them. It was very bizarre. Well, I I have memory of and I and I look for it. And I I have no record as to what the book is, but it's a it would have been somewhere in the early seventies, but it was a. Uh, in some type of anthology book, and I don't think it was Marvel or DC, but it was about a space vampire. And it was, the story opens with a guy finding all these bodies uh, strewn about that they've taken out of their suspended animation uh, containers, and he finds out that as a vampire got on board this ship, and he's been thawing people out, and he's been, you know, snacking on them. So the whole story is him being chased by this vampire throughout the whole spaceship. And he continually kind of thwarts him he 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 at one point he throws all these chemicals at him and one of them has silver so that kind of stops him and then at one point he he uh you know vampires can't cross running water so he runs a stream of water you know um and he finally thinks he's going to get on board uh okay but he was going to get on board a shuttle and leave or the vampire tells him no i i i've i launched all the shuttles you can't escape me and the shuttle blows up. Well, they're in this big uh, observation room or something, and the the windows have crosses in them. You know, it's like it's a segregated window. So the explosion creates all this light, and they cast a shadow of a cross on the vampire, and he dies. So he basically kills himself. So the house believes. Yeah, and I don't. I don't. Was it? A I don't know where. Was it a where I saw that. It's it's. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a spaceship. I hear yeah. that. Count. Anyway, I. Anyway, moving on. Let's uh, move on to... Uh... Totally now. 
Don't even think of leaving now. Dracula hasn't had his dinner yet. <laughs> his first Marvel work. Yeah, this is uh, from Giant Size Dracula number five. And, you know, like we mentioned before, this, like the the other book, Nightmare, is an anthology book uh, filled with stories. Some have Dracula, some don't. Some are just uh, like uh, horror stories or whatnot. And this, this particular story is one there's no mention of Dracula in it whatsoever. It's published by Marvel Comics. It's got a cover date of uh, June 1975 with an on-sale date of March 18, 1975. The cover price was $0.50 cents for a large 64-page count. And the story that we're reading is titled Dark Asylum. It's eight pages with a plot by Tony Isabella, a script by David Anthony Kraft, penciled by John Byrne, inked by Rudy Nibris, and edited by Len Wein. <clears throat> now... I looked at the synopsis that was on the wiki, and it was completely just useless. So I went ahead and wrote one real quick, and it goes something okay. like this: What? Before you go, before you go. Okay. Um, so I have the Tomb Dracula omnibus, hmm. and uh, that um, I think it's the second, or the, I think it's the second omnibus. It's like issues thirty-two through seventy, and. Uh, the giant size tomb of Dracula. This story is not in it. Weird. Which I found interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's they have the tomb of Dracula giant size number five, but they have just the main story, but not this one. So I thought that was kind of odd uh, that it wasn't included. I guess they were just focusing on just the Dracula stuff. Yeah, and, and this right here also had uh, a bad editing mistake uh, in the fact that I think, let's, let me see here. Uh, page 44 and 45 are good, but then page 46 is from later in the book. So you have to go and read page um, 47, 48, and then go back to <laughs> page 46. So the pages are out of order. Somehow, so, yeah, somehow. Oh, so 40, 49 should follow 46. Right. Oh, okay. Because you, I you wonder can, why those people disappeared and came back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let, let me go ahead and read the synopsis, and then we can talk about the, the pages and, and the art as it is. <clears throat> Keith Starr finds himself in a castle, being attacked by a large winged wolf creature. The creature talks to him as it attacks, letting him know he is in another realm from which there is no escape, and that he is at the hands of the dark wizard Zok, the, the beast's master. The creature tells Keith that if he stays, he will not be hurt. But Keith grabs a spear from a cobweb-covered suit of armor and runs the demon beast through. He searches through the castle, looking for an exit. 
He grabs a torch and carries on until he comes across a woman, a beautiful woman scantily clad and offering himself to him as she craves a mate with which to spend the eternal night. He rejects her in favor of freedom, and so she reveals another form of a female demon snake. She moves towards him, letting him know she cannot bear to remain alone, isolated in the darkness for eternity. He hits her in the face with his torch, and she slithers away, leaving the smell of burnt flesh. He next comes across a man and a woman, their hands in shackles. The two tell Keith that he must confront the dark wizard, and they can lead him to Zok. The two seem familiar to Keith, but he can't place them. They come to a ladder and tell Keith this is where they part, but let him know that his mind is the ultimate weapon. He travels up the ladder to meet Zok up at the top. The dark wizard appears as a cloaked being of flame, holding an ornate sword. Barehanded, Keith attacks the wizard, dodging the cloaked man's first swing of the sword. The battle goes up close and personal as Keith quickly strikes the wizard in the face with a loud crack. The wizard grabs Keith by the throat. Keith pulls down the hood from the wizard's cloak, only to reveal himself. Keith kicks his magical doppelganger off the side of the castle. As the dark wizard version of himself falls, he screams, echoes, and fades, as does the landscape around him. He sees a door to freedom. He steps through and is swept away in a sea of vertigo to return elsewhere. And elsewhen. He is found on a bed in a straitjacket in the Hellberg Asylum for the, for the Insane. We now see the two guides that assist him, assisted him in his dream were actually the doctor and nurse at the asylum. They note that up until a few moments ago he was raving mad, and now he has snapped out of it. The nurse comments that it's almost as if his mind fought his own insanity and won. Keith had earned his freedom from his insanity and can now rest peacefully. The end. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, as far as the uh, the story goes, the story, you know, it's the standard kind of thing for that, uh, for, for a book like this, you know, um, where everything is not as, as it would seem. But the art, uh, I mean, you can see the burn layouts, but it, it almost looks like a cross between Pat Broderick and Gil Kane in, in, in some pages. And there's only a few panels where you actually see the, uh, the glint of Burns' uh, style of art. You do. I, I don't see Gil Kane so much. I do a little bit. When he's going up the ladder, I see a little um, Neil Adams because of the weird Dutch angles he's doing. But um, but you understand why I'm, I'm also saying I see Pat Broderick in there, especially like when you look at that first page. The the facial expression, the the look of the face, it's it's definitely not a burn face. That's definitely something else. I mean, this is no. Yeah, they're almost photo. They almost look like they're photo uh, reference faces. Really? Uh, hmm. Well, just a little bit. I mean, just from the detail, it doesn't have the burn detail in it yeah. that you would say it looks a little more sketchy. Um, which is the, maybe that's what you're referring to as, as Broderick. I mean, I'm probably yeah. not as familiar with his work as I should, but. Uh, I love the splash page. I like the demon. The demon thing uh, demon is, is well done. Yeah. The demon wolf thing, yeah. It's. Uh, I like the way the they've got his growl kind of floating under his black wings, and I like his mus the muscles rippling. Um, and it's um, it's not necessarily burn, but I do like the, I do like the um, all right now. I do like the artwork in this. Take a look near the right hand bottom of the front the, the first page. And tell me if Byrne actually tried to put his name in the spider web. Not at the very bottom, but it, next to the word caption there, to the bottom word caption on the right. Where? If, if you look at the word, the last word caption where it says, with no memory of his past, you see spider web to the right of the caption. 
And I was wondering, is Byrne trying to put his his name in there? It looks a little I bit like a, that. But I, I see a B. And maybe I'm not sure R. if he was if he was signing his name that way, the way he signs it now back then. I don't yeah. I don't remember, but he could have he it, you know I could definitely see he could probably try to. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think the anchor didn't really catch what he was doing, so he didn't get the whole thing right. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that's I mean you know it, it, and everything is right there that you need too. Even the suit of armor with the 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 spear that uh, he takes in the in the the next page. Well, his storytelling is, to your point, his storytelling is, uh, it's pretty uh, apparent here. Yeah. You can almost take the dialogue out and you can tell, because when you see him running towards that, um, the suit of armor with that pike up there, you know, in its, in its, in its arms, you don't really, you know what he's doing, you know. And then when he's, you know, it, the thing's pouncing on him and you just see him uh, run it through. The stab, stab running through it, yeah, it's... um. Some of the angles I don't think are quite burned. The that angle with him stabbing it yeah. and it's kind of coming down on him. Almost looks that's like not quite, Yeah, that's not quite. And, and the the figures look like, and I can't think of an artist um, that um, it's reminded me of. Uh, I get to your point. I get glimpses like in the in the woman uh, uh, Lydia. She, I get a little bit of burn there. She's you know she looks for some reason she reminds me of his work on Red Sonia. I think it's the bikini top. Um, That's like a snake skin bikini top. Maybe think of Princess Leia's yeah. gold bikini, but then you know that was ten years later. Yeah, almost. Um, and then when well, she a transforms, clad woman is a scantily clad woman, no matter right. what it's, decade yeah, you're in. It's, exactly. it's true. It's true. But look at the, the teenage fantasy is going to be. Yeah, what's what's around her feet? It's almost like a poison ivy kind of sandal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, kind of a little bit of a. Is it Sylvia? What's the Mars, a Princess of Mars, kind of a outfit. Deja Thoris? Is that her name? I think so. I, can't, I haven't read the books in forever, but it's very ornate. It, this would be more, uh, uh, I think, a little more precise, a little cleaner. Uh, and I don't, I think the breaking of the, the, the panels, he does that throughout, is a little uh, unlike Byrne, and especially that one where he's going up the ladder. That, that just, to me, just screams Neil Adams. Um, yeah. Um, and that's just mainly, I think, the, the, the weird angle that he's going up. But um, And I don't like the page where he's fighting himself, where it's just the vertical panels going down. That's um, it's well done, you know. And, well, go to, and go to page 48 for a second, and that's where he rejects the, uh, the Lydia. Lydia. And then mm-hmm. she reveals herself as the, the snake demon or whatever that is. And you can see Burns, you know, his line in there, though it's very thin. It's obviously that, you know, you can see Burn in that in the, the second, third and fourth panels. But the rest of the He's, panel and in, in that last panel where it's just him with the torch. That's oh, that's 100 percent. Yeah, that's 100 percent Burn. But, you know, the other ones, I mean, you have to look to see it in there, but that's. Uh, very demonstrative of, of, of his pencil where the, the anchor's just like, I don't know how to do this other than just to do what he did. Yeah. Well, I see a little bit in her hands when she's transformed into the snake demon. Uh, yeah. Uh, a little bit. Her hair is a little Sienkiewicz, that kind of wild and crazy. Yep. Um, and a little bit of the flames. but uh, And I think the the inking on her body that is, I guess, is to represent uh, scale is... I don't know what he drew there, but he penciled it. I don't know. And that may, may be just the anchor's interpretation, but that's a little, uh, not quite 
um, what you'd expect. You'd expect more of a almost like a, a Zipatone scale or scale mail, like exactly something like yeah. that. I'm I'm trying to think what if he. I'm trying to think of a, of a correlation of something he's done and his you know when he's established his style later that uh, um, would have done. But you know, and again, we don't know how much uh, this anchor. If he maybe he wasn't very respectful for Burns' work, you know, maybe he he wanted to put too much of himself into it. So we don't know. Well, I'd love to see these pencils. There again on page forty-eight. If you look at the top left panel, when she's sitting there, she's got her arms on his shoulders. If you look at his torso, you can tell that that Burns has not figured out anatomy completely yet, and that's a demonstration of. We see the same kind of things done, shortcuts taken in Doomsday Plus One or Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. Uh, yeah. and some in even Iron Fist where he's he's perfecting it a little bit better but yeah he's still working on his anatomy or male anatomy definitely uh, what do you mean what's wrong with that figure I don't get it, it, it it's like his waist and um, the you know basically from where the the, the pants start going down the, the, the line and where, the, where the, the legs split is not it's just not the way Byrne you know drew it later the anat- you, you you don't see the, the the fine line of the anatomy like Berman normally draw. Okay. And and that was common through the, the books that he did in this era, early on. Yeah. yeah. And we don't know what his idea was. If this is him trying to do more of a horror style, as opposed to what he would do with superheroes. So maybe I'd he's purposely see, doing. I'd love to see the you know any stats they may have of the of the pencil pages yeah. here. If anyone's I'd love to see the that. pencils because I don't know. Yeah. So the next page, actually, even though uh, we're on page 49, you need to go back to page 46. And then you see him going up the, the stairs in the castle and coming across the two people in shackles. And that guy reminds, this is, reminds me of Eunice the Untouchable. This, the, 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 the look of this page is so different from everything else. It, I mean, you can't... You, you, if, if you didn't know this is the same story... You you could get lost real easily because the characters don't. He doesn't even look like the character that we saw at the beginning of the of the story. Because I, right, and when I read this, I didn't realize that they were out of order, and I thought he meets the two, and then then they abandon. They're either fall (laughs) right, or they're behind him or something. He goes on, he meets Lydia, and has that whole thing, and then they come back to him. So it is, you know, you can read it as it's written, but um, it's a little. Maybe this is why this was not reprinted, because they, either somebody knew that the story was flawed in the publication, or there was a debate as to whether to reprint it exactly as it was published or to correct yeah. it. I think it's just because yeah. it wasn't a Dracula story. That it I think that's, that's, that's true. More than likely. I mean, they've reordered pages and made corrections before, so I don't see why they wouldn't just reorder it. Yeah. 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 Well, it's like if you ever read the the some of the when they would when the 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 two and one not the two and one but the stories that were like when Hulk was like teamed up with was it Hulk and Submariner in the same book? Yeah, in Tales to Astonish. Right when they would when I think I've got some pocket books that publish some of those they've got just the Hulk stuff in there they don't they don't publish the whole issue they're just pulling out with, you know the subject they're dealing with so I think that's probably more likely why it's not in the omnibus and you know they want to if you're buying a dracula omnibus you want all dracula you don't want yeah i think you're right yeah so have we covered this now or is there more to deal with 
Well, I mean, well, I think we haven't looked at the rest of the art because I think that there's something really interesting to point out. Um, the layouts are interesting. I like the the look of Zock uh, when they first show him because it just looks like a flaming character, and this is definitely not the same kind of flaming look that he would give to Johnny Storm. Yeah. Though he'd already the flames are just totally different than what he would do earlier. Right, right. I, but I, I think this goes to the anchor for the most part because um, we've seen him draw Johnny Storm even earlier than this in his uh, tryout story, that Fantastic Four, um, that yeah. the Fantastic Four thing that he did with. Um, yeah, the, God, yeah, we covered that. Yeah, we covered that very early on. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like you said, there's that one page that's all you know vertical panels. Where he realizes he's fighting himself, and I, I mean, I that's that is pure burn in layout. Mm-hmm. And you, that's yeah, I see that there absolutely. Um, it's a little. Uh, that's cheating. He's cheating. <laughs> he's using the same style of, of pose. That's cheating. <laughs> I got all my money back. <laughs> well, he, he has. Well, it's a, very. Uh, like Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> he's fighting himself. Yeah. Or and all also with the two, the two, the doctor and the nurse that he sees in his dream or delusion or whatever is, I was I was reminded of Total Recall where the doctor comes in and tries to convince Schwarzenegger that he's really yep. in a psychotic break and he's not really you know out in the world. But isn't that Cole Rami from um, Peak Performance, the Next Gen episode, mm-hmm. with Zach Dorn? Yeah. I'm, yep. Yep. The melted face guy. I hate that guy. <laughs> He's good at making you hate him. Uh, anyway, the go ahead. Top, well, the top of page fifty-one yeah. is you've seen him do this, where he's kind of this vertigo. Yes, you've seen it. That's, that's absolutely burn. pure burn. Yeah, 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 and that's yeah. And, that and Anchor's just over. looking at that, going, "I have no idea what to do with yeah. that, so I am just <laughs> going to go over line for line." <laughs> what is this? Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. So this this seems like a typical like well. It, anthology style story that would belong in House of Mystery or something like that and, and I'm, I'm wondering if it just got stuck into the Tomb of Dracula because that was probably its only uh, uh, it's an eight page story they needed to fill eight pages well and it's a, a horror style book yeah. already yeah. you know that would probably fit well with the theme even though it's not a Dracula story per se but I mean it does seem like a, a like one of the anthology stories that belong in one of those House of Mystery books. And I'm trying to think um, if Marvel had a anthology horror or not. I don't think so. I think they were pretty much character-driven horror books, weren't they? I don't think they did. I don't think they had an anthology. Yeah. Um, unless it's some of the big black and white. You know, they had their, their run where they were doing, like, the Hulk black and white. Yeah. Uh, the more adult stuff. They had, uh, um think man thing originally was in a the larger black and white kind of more adult type story but for, for it kind of yeah. eased, eased into just you know buck monster stuff um and some of these it's uh, this reminds me a lot of the stuff you would see in annuals yeah you know, you'd have your main story and then you have two or three backups and some of them are like kind of tryouts like mm-hmm. this is burns first work it's like okay kid we're going to give you this eight page story let's see what you can do and then yep. they shove it in dracula and no. Yeah, and, and that that last panel, I was sitting there looking at that, and that made me think more again of, of Pat Broderick doing his Legion of Superheroes. It looks like uh, Timberwolf. Um, hmm. and that, Pat Broderick's, Broderick's run was just before Keith Giffen started uh, in the, the Great Darkness Saga. Hmm. So if you want to look at those, so it's somewhere around the area of issues 284, and you can see the, the, the uh, 
similarity in the artwork, in my opinion. I could be wrong, though. It was, it was an interesting story. It was kind of yeah. fun. Yeah. It, yeah, if, it's if, fun. If I look at it, I definitely wouldn't have... It would take me a while, if I, if I, if I even could pick out that it was burned, because it just looks like so many other influences. Uh, Neil Adams, uh, particularly, uh, it seems like some of the faces of the main character... It looks to me more like Neil Adams-ish, um, and then, like you said, some of the other folks, but Pat Broderick, but Broderick, I don't think, was writing it or drawing it this time, was he? Any come later? Uh, you know what? I'd have to I'd have to look at that, because, I, again, I knew he was doing the Legion around the same time as all that, so I'll, 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 I have to look now, so, van. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, I think we, yeah, we, we, uh, this is a fun little story. It's, and if you want to see early burn, yeah, it's not, uh, you know, it's not, to your point, John, you, there's, there's, the only, if I was reading this and nobody told me it was burn, the only panel I would look at and go, wow, oh, that's burn is that vertigo one. Marvel did have a book called Haunt of Horror that was being okay. published around the same time. Uh, it, it, it's funny because I was looking at Pat Broderick, his first credit, September 1974. Haunt of Horror, and it is more magazine type, uh, like like the Warren Publishing or, or Nightmare. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it definitely got a, an anthology look, and it looks like it's uh, following Warren in the the um, the, you know, the, the sexy kind of stuff. Because you see yeah. basically zombies on the cover and a very Susan Sarandon Rocky Horror Picture Show looking woman uh, crawling in front of that. And then they've got the Exorcist tapes. Okay, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> the Exorcist tape. Wow. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I uh, you know, this is a story I've been aware of for quite some time, and you know, Tim and I have talked about it over the years, and uh, just you know, it's like it's it's interesting, you know, especially you know, it, you know that that's Burns' first published work at Marvel, but it, yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, what it what it looked like before you know Rudy got a got his hands on it. I want to see yeah. the, the, the original pencils. Well, and let's be honest, that the really only significant part of the story is the fact that it's Burns' first yeah. Marvel work. If, if that wasn't the case, then this would just be Throw a generic... Yeah, it's... it's and forgotten. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely forgotten. Um, but, you know, if you're going to if you're gonna study a man and cover a man, you need to kind of cover his beginnings and, uh, you know, warts and all. So... The artwork's not bad. I think it's it's actually quite good, uh, and the layouts are good. It's just not what we think of as, you know, you know when you when you think Burn, your most people think of, you know, him at his height in X Men or Man of Steel, that kind of really polished work, and this is not quite there yet. I was only able to find one comment from Burn on this, and basically it says, "Don't expect to find anything that looks even remotely like my work." <laughs> well, that tells me that he's either. He's even telling me that Inker had a pretty heavy hand. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's saying he wasn't quite, his style wasn't there yet. Yeah, so I I'm think pretty maybe sure that's he what doing... he meant by that. Yeah. 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 So, but, you know, that's, uh, we've, we've seen that before in some of his work, you know, and um, the, the the two books we were going to cover today were not the Spider-Man books. Those are, they've got some, uh, some changes in those two. Cool. Well, we have uh, we're going to kind of have this as a short show, but 
I think we were going to read an email or two, right, Brian? We have some. We got a couple couple emails here, both of course from uh, Mr. Nigel? Mr. Uh, Rick Sheffield, Nigel Spink. Now, actually, we have three because we have uh, we did not read his John Byrne on the Champions in um, in in any recent one. He actually pointed that out. So. Um, that one says, <clears throat> Hello, Tim, Brian, John, Kirk, and David. When I first saw the cover of Champions Number 1 in, on the stands in 1975, with Gil Kane, Dan Atkins' cover, there was never any doubt that I would buy it. Um, with the exception of Ghost Rider, I was familiar with the rest of the characters, and I was happy to see them appearing in what I hope would be a regular title once again. Unfortunately, the interior work proved less inspiring, but I stayed faithful to, uh, to the group. Issues 8 through 10 showed improvement in both story and art, though the title seemed only average at best. Upon opening issue 11, I instantly remember thinking, wow, this is sensational. There was something spectacular and exciting about every page, and then I saw the artist's name and I realized, this is a guy from Marvel Team-Up. Fantastic! The champions came alive, and from here, I love this issue. Um, I, no, sorry, from here, and I love this issue. It had great artwork and pacing. It had guest stars and new potential members. It had a previous C-rate villain appearing in a serious threat, something Byrne has always excelled at. It had a to-be-continued ending starring Stiltman. What more could you want? Well, a beer or... Well, yeah. anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> issue number 12 just ramped up the non-stop action. Those first three page, uh, splash pages were fabulous, and Dark Star was a great addition to the team. Then Byrne introduces a stranger, fresh from his appearance in Team Up 55 with Spider-Man and Warlock on the moon, and the threat of the Null Life Bomb from Silver Surfer number 5. Suddenly, the champion's title is right up there with the best of them. The story continued nicely in issue 13, though I felt I lost a little impact, mainly due to the storyline more than anything else, but the artwork carried it through. Issues 14 and 15 gave us some fabulous artwork and a well-paced and well-paced storytelling, including Fritz von Meyer, also known as Swarm. I kind of liked him and thought he could be a quite serious threat given this right situation, but some readers see him as a bit of a joke. Either way, Byrne seems to like his Nazi villains. Might be an interesting research to see just how many Nazi villains have appeared in all of Byrne's work over the years. Early on in the story, we saw I Ivan Petrovich leave for Russia, possibly on a mission for Nick Fury. Now, someone asked if there was a follow-up story to what happened after Ivan was met on board the, uh, by the two surly Soviets. I'm sure Mantlo and Byrne intended to carry on the subplot, but never got the chance to due to uh, title cancellation. However, not too long after Champions finished, early 80s or so, Black Widow had a four-part story in Marvel Fanfare, issues number 10 through 13 by Ralph Macchio, drawn and co-plotted by George Perez, in which S.H.I.E.L.D. are investigating the kidnapping or possible defection of one, Ivan Petrovich, to the Soviets. I believe it's very possible that Ralph and George were aware of Ivan's last appearance in the, in the Champions and were, when plotting this story. I have to say that covering all these issues in one podcast was a brave undertaking on your part, gentlemen, and for the most part, you succeeded. However, I felt at times you put yourselves under pressure to move on when there was much left to discuss in certain points. Maybe it would have been better to split into two podcasts, which, if nothing else, would have given you more time to wax lyrical over Mr. Burns' art and contribution to the stories. Still, I enjoyed following along with these issues, and I thank you. Lastly, ideas on what to cover in future podcasts? 
I believe Byrne worked on some Marvel 2-in-1 issues. There's also Marvel Team-Up, Iron Fist, the Silver Surfer Special Edition, X-Men, The Hidden Years, or even IDW's Trio and Triple Helix. Sorry for another overly long email, but I just but I just like talking about comics, especially when drawn by Byrne, and after all, isn't that what this is all about? Nigel Spink, a.k.a. Rick. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, nice... Uh very nice email. I'm glad that he's. I'm glad he's getting something out of what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, to his comment about the Nazi villains, um, mm-hmm. we, let's look at the time period. Um, World War Two was still. Um, I mean, we still had survivors from World War Two. I mean, my. So you know that was still a pretty big context, as well as the Cold War with all the Russian spy and on all that stuff. So. Um, I think we're seeing less of them now because we're so much further away from it. But, um, but back then, you know, that was still a, a topic of conversation and it was still very vibrant and alive in people's minds and memories. It's funny yeah. that you should mention that because, you know, there, there's a big topic of conversation on Burns' website, burnrobotics.com, in the forum about um, something that happened here in, in Texas last week. Uh, South Lake, which is not too far away from where I live, uh, had a, I guess, a, a council meeting in regards to school curriculum. And one of the members of the board, when someone mentioned uh, the Holocaust, said, well, maybe we should have some opposing viewpoint books available also. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just insanity i mean i understand you know there there's a requirement somewhere about opposing viewpoints and all that but that's just taking it a little too far unless it's about creation then of course opposing viewpoints are not allowed <laughs> yep true 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 but yeah it's um this is one person's suggestion and probably they're doing it based on what they see as the rules of what's going on but that started a forum discussion called what's wrong with texas so (laughs) it's just one person leave us alone we're really okay (laughs) (sighs) anyway Well, well those are some good ideas i mean we've talked about triple helix and um trio uh trio of doing that, so uh, you know that's that's definitely been on the on the discussion list, and maybe you know we'll put that in the rotation soon. I mean that'd be great, and you know we, I guess because uh, we're doing so much X Men books and X Men elsewhere, and I think we've probably not considered X Men Hidden Years, have we? I mean, uh, it, it, much- it hasn't come up yet as something that we were planning on doing, but I mean. I think, you know, someone had made a comment that we're doing so much Marvel, but you can't help it because that is about it's, 75% of his career was, was yeah, doing Marvel so you work. Can't, you can't, you can't right. that. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, one thing that's at the back of my mind right now, I mean, obviously, you know, there are things that we've talked about doing generations, but that would definitely be a, a big undertaking or, or we, we could space that out over maybe next year. Um but uh, also uh, something to, to do next year, because it will be the 40th anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark, I believe. And we'd like to get Raiders of Lost, uh, or Indiana, The Adventures of Indiana Jones, uh, issues one and two covered. But we have to bring in at least Scott Gardner for that. Yeah, I think you want to do Scott and uh, Chris Honeywell. Yeah, we, we've, we've, we've um, promised them that. So, uh, But I've been itching to do some Next Men. 
Yeah, we need we need to. Do, yeah, we talked about that since the from the since the creation of the show. We haven't done um, we haven't done any next bit, and that's a his, that's one of his most significant kind of independent books uh, that he's done. So uh, I'm wondering if we do um, hidden years. If we do that as instead of because how many issues are there of that? 20, 12? 22. 22? Uh, you may have to do that more as an overview instead of, unless you want to just pick an episode or yeah, pick a couple of issues and do with some arcs in it. Otherwise, it would be kind of a, here's an overview of, because you kind of obviously can't cover all of it at one time, uh, at least not in depth. So, Yeah, I went through my boxes <clears> and I pulled out the, all the next men I have. I don't have the, the complete series, but I'm... Ooh. I've got I've, it, but I've I have I've read it, it all. Um... And I can't tell you how exactly I remember reading it all, because I mean, like I said, I got a bunch of the books. Um, you know, the I think I'm, I'm up to like 17 or 18 in the issues, and then I've got the Faith series um, here and Lies. Yeah. So those are two four well, issue series. I think I, I think I bought when you were having your garage sale, and I, I, we came over and I bought some trades from you. Yeah. I think I bought some of your Next Men trades. Yep. I do believe you um, did. Here Which issue has the debut of Hellboy? I'd like to suggest that one for a Halloween theme tie-in. We could do just that one episode. Well, and, and the other one that, that I was talking about um, was the Fantastic Four issue with Thing on Battle World, because that issue had him going, you know, meet, coming up against the Frankenstein monster and other. Yeah, we talked about that. I think that last year when we did our other one. Um... Well, if we want to do, uh, I know this is our Halloween show. If we want to do another one and just and, and do a, a just cover one issue and maybe do it as a shorter show, we could do do that. Or I don't know. We'll have to. We'll have to. Let's see. And, you know, uh, Hellboy appears in Next Men Twenty One, and that was his first appearance in a regularly published title, first color right. appearance. Before that, he was in what Dime Press uh, Number Four and. Uh, cover only of San Diego Comic Con comics number two, and that was a black and white piece. Yeah, yeah. Next Men Twenty One first uh, full appearance of. Well, we've got and I, and I and I should know if you read this or not. I've got it marked as green. I can't I can't tell. We've got if you want to kind of end the show with one more from Nigel. It's on Man of Steel one through three. Have we read that one? Not yet. Okay. Well, let me read that real quick and then we can kind of close out. It's a it's it's a, it's kind of a short one, but. Short and one it's from, topical. from Nigel? Well, I, that's just not right. I mean... <laughs> I'll, re- I'll read it fast. I'll okay. okay. Hello, Brian, Tim, David, John, and Kirk. Sorry, your last Kirk. Uh, <laughs> I was never really a DC Comics fan growing up. Uh, I had only read a few stories here and there, usually starring Batman, who was actually the first superhero I ever knew, but I, grew, I just guess I discovered Marvel soon after, and once I realized... Uh, their adventures did not take place in the same universe I chose to go with Marvel. Of course, I was also aware of Superman, and while I did not dislike him, he never really appealed to me. He seemed almost too good and far too powerful. Uh, who could ever uh, who could ever pose a threat to Superman? The only title I ever I had collected prior to John Byrne moving over to DC was the New Teen Titans. So I was buying Man of Steel because of Byrne and not of any out of any loyalty for Superman. I picked up the trade paperback covering all six issues of the title run and was not disappointed. 
The covers of the first three issues uh, are great, highlighting a ma- uh, main or supporting character from each uh, alongside a suitable action picture from the plot itself. I enjoyed issue one with a prologue on Krypton, which covered everything the reader needed to know uh, succinctly. Nice, clear burn uh, art. Uh, art covered Clark's years from child to early adult, and of course, the creation of the famous costume. Issue 2 was a well written day in the life tale of Superman's early appearances in Metropolis. Byrne definitely drew, no pun intended, from Superman the movie uh, on this one with with Lois chasing, tr- chasing around trying to get an interview with Supes, the hero dealing with everyday street crimes in an easygoing Christopher Reeves kind of way. And that picture of Superman at the bottom right panel of page seven is right out of the film as he takes off and gives his uh, his little salute of by now. <laughs> issue three, unlike a lot of you, is actually my favorite issue. This is probably due to nostalgia and the fact that it stars my favorite DC characters drawn by my favorite artists. We get Superman and Batman together, which reminded me of an old world, old world's finest issue. Oh, an old world's finest issue I read as a kid. The story has action. But the plot is more uh, detective-like. I even quite like Magpie as a suitable sadistic villain, but I realized this was, after all, a Superman title, so the plot had to be had to be brief to fit into the into one issue. Looking forward to your reviews of issues four through six, and hopefully in the future maybe Legends. Ooh. Nigel, thanks. We have talked about doing Legends. Yes. But we may have to let some space breathe between kind of Superman stuff we've done. Yeah. And you know. Uh, do legend so especially if we're going to talk about doing uh, generations coming up that is you know a lot of again you can't help it he did a lot of Superman <laughs> I mean and it's all great I mean it's all great I can't think of um, any of his Superman stories that I would consider weak you know I mean, no 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 uh, and uh, I mean because I'm sitting there going man I'd really we've already done issue one of Superman I'd really love to do issue two because that that is just an amazing story, great art. Of course, Terry Austin's doing the inks, and mm-hmm. you get to see a lot of really cool stuff. And you get to see Superman at his most angry. And I mean, just you know, that's that's awesome. And that's something to to look forward to covering. And then issue three yeah. is, of course, the Legends tie-in, and once again, Terry Austin doing the inks. And I mean, Byrne was really just hitting on all cylinders with not just the the art, the story, and everything, but the fashion and all that. Even for Clark Kent, you see him wearing like the the long uh, top coat and everything as he's trying to run away from Dark Side's Omega beams. <laughs> yeah, well, Burns always been. We brought that up several times. Yeah. Burns always been very fashion conscious, yes. but um, I do think we need to do to, as a kind of a palate cleanser to do you know, maybe trio, maybe. Uh, you mentioned um, some Star Trek, some some more new some Star Trek. I'd love to do some more of his to do many a books. full yeah. crew. And, and someone had asked recently for us to do the full Romulan story because I know we've covered bits and pieces of it, right? But we haven't covered you the full do, story. We, we could, could do a break apart, you know, thing like we did. Yeah, do. we could do crew, and we have done McCoy, right? And we could do crew as a full coverage, uh, or we could go back to Assignment Earth and kind of finish that. We did one, I think, one issue one of that. Issue of that. Now, you know, and I'll yeah. say this, you know, the, as far as our format has been, um, the way we did the Man of Steel, I thought was really, really good. Um, and he's in, and, and, and he's right about champions being too fast, too much, too quick. 
uh, you know, and we just didn't really get to give the issues the the you know the attention that they needed because we were in such a hurry. Yeah. So I think that the three issues per is probably the best. And so if we do you know other yeah. other series where we decide to do a run, that we should just basically you know do it like that. Split if it if up. we do, we yeah. need to accept the fact that it's going to be a longer episode. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, I mean, well I, that being yeah, said, I that's I, good for right uh, now. We can hold yeah, our last I think we've, we've, uh, email until next time. Yeah. I don't. I don't think they need to hear any more of us uh, uh, show politics going on here. You know about what we're what we're gonna do. Well, this is the part but, where they're actually yelling at us what to do next. This is the part where they're, probably, where, where the probably. they're talking to us, going, "No, no, you probably. need to cover the the Peter Parker issues, or you need to cover you know something that no, Ghost no, Rider you gotta Daredevil put it in crossover." An email. Yeah, right. You gotta get email. burned at gmail dot com. Put your comments, your complaints, your requests in that, and we'll read it on the air. That's right. Or go to our Facebook page. Now, with the new website, well, I'll ask that later. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But uh, it's, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? I mean, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, uh, definitely leave us a I review. That we need a review. review. Yeah, send us some reviews or you know, reach out to us on Facebook. That's a great place to spark a debate or Got over 300 a members in our or, Facebook group. We can always use more. Yeah, we are really uh, we're, we're and three. Well, what we're going to try and figure out where we. I think that we can post most, if not all, these pages, but we might end up just doing it in a Facebook group because I don't know that everybody can get access to the the Dracula book. Yeah, and I've got them. I pulled them apart because for some reason my Dracula was corrupt, and I had to I had to uh, uh, you know expand it and, and pulled the uh, the JPEGs out and I made them into a new CBR. Oh. So we can just put those two like they do on the Elswin stories. We can just put those two as as in the files or something, yeah. so people can so they can go to them, them and read them. You know, these are these are definitely if you're a burn fan, these are worth looking at. Yeah, yeah. And we also want to hear your opinion about the Mighty Bins players and their dramatic reading at the beginning of this episode. That's right. <laughs> that's that was kind of fun. Yeah. That would be kind of fun if we did. You know, maybe that's a, a special project. We do a dramatic reading of one issue. <clears throat> Something short. There's, there's enough of us. There's enough of us to do. Uh, you know, to have enough voices. I would really like to see a dramatic reading of um, Justice League. You know, the the Bwahaha Justice League issue one. But you'd have to get like Doctor Bill to be Guy Gardner. There you go. <laughs> but who would be Batman? Gene Hendricks. <laughs> oh, that's the sign. That's the bell. That's the bell. It's time to go. At least it's not a screaming goat. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Uh, well, I, you know, we we really appreciate you listening to us. Uh, keep an eye out for our next uh, episode. We, of course, uh, along with everything else that we're doing, we've been trying to do constant coverage of John Burns X Men Elsewhere, and so you know, also be looking for uh, one of those to be coming up soon. Uh, we missed David Thompson, but he had uh, familial responsibilities today uh, and wasn't able to join us. But hopefully, he'll be back with us real soon. Uh, if there's nothing else for Third Degree Burn, that right there is Kirk Greenfield. Say bye. See ya. Tim Elliott. Bye-bye. John Hyatt. Oh, he's John muted. Hyatt. He's unmuted. Oh. John, did he get eaten? I think I was taking him. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Say goodnight, John. Good night. <laughs> and I'm Brian Hughes. Y'all have a great Halloween and uh, we'll be here back again soon.
Hey guys, this is uh, Brian Hughes here, and I've got my good friend David. Hey, David, say hi. Hello. Hey. Hey. And how's it going? Hey. It's been a while. It, it's been a minute. Uh, it's going good. We're uh, we're getting ready for winter time here in the uh, the tundra lands like of the north. Snowing up there. It's coming. You know, far in far northern Minnesota, I believe they've had some snow. Here, we just kind of. Went right from like, hey, these are really nice fall days to highs in the 40s, yeah. lows in the 20s. <laughs> I, I'll uh, be honest. So it's, it's coming. I'll be honest. I miss it. But I only miss it because I've been away from it for, you know, like 50 years. I just remember you know, in it, my childhood, I lived in Minnesota and it was like, you know, a winter wonderland. But then my parents, you know, knew when to let us out and when to keep us in. <laughs> yep. Well, and that's the thing, you know, before we had kids, you know, Jennifer and I were getting very t just tired of the snow, you know, it's as an adult, it's not nearly as exciting. Um, but kids kind of reinvigorate that, you know, you watch them, you know, we have a big hill in the backyard where they go sledding in the wintertime mm -hmm. and they make snowmen and they're doing snowball fights and they're just running around, you know, making snow angels and then we're in a cul-de-sac on top of it so of course you know a big snowplow comes and makes a huge mound when we have enough snow for it and you know they climb up the the big snow mountain and you know they, they have a lot of fun in it yeah i you know i, I remember because i was i was a very very young child and my grandfather um he he had two jobs in the morning he would run the toy store uh and this okay. is in a very very small town of rushford which is just like 20 minutes out of winona and um, he would run the toy store until lunch, and then he would come home, and he would uh, sit on the couch and read some comic books um, to me, because I was too young to, to do that time. I mean, I was just like an infant, you know. And right. he would read the comic books to me, and we'd fall asleep, and then, you know, he'd wake up around three, and then he would go off and run the tavern, which was Stumpy's Tavern is his place. And um, though his name wasn't Stumpy, so I don't know where that came from. But um, the, the, one of the things was, was a comment that he made to my mom, and I never forgot it. And he goes, you know, as a, as a young kid, I loved the snow. And as a young man, when you guys were kids, I really loved the snow. But now at my age, when I hear snow, all I hear about is the guy I know, same age as me, that just died <laughs> shoveling it. And because yep. it's like three, four people in his age range all died in, this, in the same weeks shoveling snow. Oh, because oh. Rushford's like in the valley and it's just, yeah, I mean, right. the snow would get up so high. And then there were some kids across the creek that got into a Roman candle war. They built up their their walls and stuff and they were using Roman candles like blasters or something. <laughs> and I know. <laughs> and this was the day of those huge. Um, the jackets that that like had the nylon cover and then they were just full of stuffing, yeah. almost like the 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 lifeguard jacket Marty wore in Back to the Future. So if those got hit wrong, those yeah. could catch fire seriously. But you know, stop, drop, and roll worked yeah. really well there. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's always fun in games until somebody gets hurt, right? Yes. And yeah. I'm sure the first person that got hit with a Roman candle projectile was like, "That's it, we're done." Yeah. Well, I think we should get to what the point of all this is, is that, um, you know, of course, the last couple episodes uh, before this nice Halloween one, we covered uh, Man of Steel's issues one through six. And I'd gone yeah. out onto Facebook and I'd asked uh, in groups, you know, what was your experience with Man of Steel? And got 
about 70, 80 plus responses, and I've gone through some of those and, and pulled out some. And so David and I are going to just take a, a few minutes here and read those because the um, Man of Steel episodes were so long, I just didn't feel good about tacking it on at the end there because, I mean, I, I know three hours is a long show as it is. So um, hopefully we can just tack it on the end of this Halloween show, which is a little bit shorter. And without like any... What? I like it. Excellent. Without any further ado, David, do you want to... Do you want to start with the first one, or do you want to sure. wait? Sure. Okay. Ha- have at it. First up is Daniel Priest. Superman was finally an interesting comic. Uh, I, this one's hard. I mean, I value Daniel's opinion, but this is hard for me because I think leading up to the reboot, um, they did some interesting things in the Superman comics. So, you know, maybe he just hadn't read anything well, I, I think like many, the, many people, you know, they, they would look at the books and see, oh, Kurt Swan. Yeah. And yeah. they would just think it's the same old, same old. And they didn't realize the stories that had come across, you know, Superman being split into two. Uh, yeah. Clark Kent, you know, he broke up with Lois. Lois had broke up with him. He'd started seeing Lana as Clark Kent. And, um, you know, just uh, any interesting creators that were coming in because we were getting a bit more of, you know, Ross Andrew and Gil Kane. And a little bit less of Kurt Swan, and then Jim yep. Starlin over on DC Comics Presents, which I thought was a great breath of fresh air um, there. So I mean, there were some interesting things that was going on, but still, John Byrne coming in, taking over Superman, rebooting it for be- lack of better words, uh, you know, definitely would excite anybody that, especially if they're a Marvel fan or if they were a Superman fan that just you know kind of lost interest. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Abraham Martinez writes, I was, uh, I'm so excited to see John Byrne's take on Superman, and I wasn't disappointed at all. Everything John Byrne touched during this time was gold. And now I hear that guy from Seinfeld, gold, Jerry, gold. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I can't, I can't disagree with that right there. I mean, you know, the, everything that he had done at Marvel. Uh, even his, you know, short run on the Hulk, Alpha Flight, Fantastic Four, probably, you know, one of the greatest runs on the Fantastic Four books, you know, next to, sure. you know, Lee and Kirby. So, yeah, he, he's right there. And, of course, X-Men at that time were flying high after Burns' run there. But X-Men became yeah. the high-flying, you know, group that it was thanks to the word of mouth of Burns' work. Sure. Yeah, the 80s were definitely Burns' strongest uh, decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is Francesco Vanagoli. I think that's Francesco Vanagoli. Francesco Vanagoli. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, where's the Vanagoli? Where's the little Vanagoli? Uh, I was three years old and can barely read in Italian. So, of course, I haven't bought Man of Steel live in 1986, yet I have read and enjoyed this book so many times that I almost feel like I was there. And I translated the latest Italian edition last year, so now I feel an even stronger bond with this comic. That's really cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That's that's yeah. Hmm. But he was three years old when it first came out. Okay, so yeah. golly, I keep forgetting. He's a little a little of Anagoli. And, and this this is the weird thing. You know, I think someone makes this comment later on, but it really doesn't feel like it was thirty five years ago. It just doesn't. It feels like you know it was maybe five ten years ago. It just doesn't feel yeah. like it was that long ago. There's lots of stuff like that. Yeah. I, you know, I'm big into cars, and it still blows my mind that, to me, 90s cars aren't, th- oh, you know, if you had a 1990, you'd be 30, 31 years old. Yep. It doesn't seem like a ni- 90s car is 30 years old, but <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> yep. When, when I was a kid, 
And um, when I first started driving, I was driving my dad's 64 Chevy Bel Air. And it, and cool. I mean, a, a 64 Chevy Bel Air looked old. And for yeah. me, it wasn't <laughs> even 20 years old when I was driving right. it. Because I was driving right. it in 80, 82, you know? So it was, right. it, it was 18 years old. But man, that was an old looking car. But sure. you, know, you think it was of just a, car, a used car. Right. You think of, you know, uh, what's an old car today? It's, man, it's just crazy. All right. So Carlos Mucha writes, in Argentina, I went to a disco. After the disco, <laughs> after the disco at the morning, I pass on a newsstand, and there it was, the Argentinian version, Superman 1, Man of Steel 1. It was 1992. <laughs> and I think he's, yeah, I really think cool. he's thinking about the second volume of Man of Steel, or the first, because well, there again, was a Man of Steel comic that ran for like a hundred and some odd issues. Yeah, you're thinking of the one that started off with John Bogdanov. Uh, doing the art, yeah. And, but I, no, I think yeah. this is probably you know again when they get to the other countries, they get to them a lot later. There's translations, there's reprintings and recoverings, and sometimes even whole pages where the art and everything is redone. And so it's very possible that it didn't get there till '92. So uh, you know, I'm, again, that would probably take some research, something that I don't need to or want to do right now. <laughs> But yeah, anything is possible. Again, you know, it's uh, it could be that, but it 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 could also just be you know the re the reprint of it or the uh, translated version of it. Uh, Very well, could be. Yeah, we'll need Carlos to let us know. Carlos, write us again. Let us know. Was it the the first volume of Man of Steel, The Burn, or was it the the ongoing comic that came out in uh, I think it was ninety one, late ninety one. Yeah. Which would make sense for him to get it in ninety two. Mm -hmm. We'll take an email at uh, get burned at gmail dot com. That's right. Yep. Uh, readers are standing by. Uh, Arthur Siegel says I was studying for the bar exam and it was the only comic I would spare the time for. Totally worth the risk. And he says he passed the bar. Excellent. For him. That's that's great. You know, I, I I know when I was in college that if I didn't have uh, an escape like my comic books or, or something else, uh, I, I would probably have gone nuts. And I mean, I had to pull all nighters and and you know all sorts of stuff. Probably wouldn't have had to do if I didn't have the comics. But at the same time, they kept me sane. Right. Yep. All right, uh, Gregory. I guess I guess I'll say Warren Chack. That's interesting. Interesting. I think that's I, right. I've never heard that before. Okay. Anyway, Gregory writes. I thought it was refreshing. The Superman title become a bit stale, even though I'd appreciated Swan's work. And this kick in the pants was thrilling to read. I hope John would stand for a long run. But alas, true, true. I mean, you know, he 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 was there for twenty three issues, and um, yeah. but he did, you know, uh, several books. He did a lot of work there. I thought so. Not uh, yeah. Not we'll have to go amount. back to. I think we I think we covered his last issue. On the Superman title mm -hmm. proper, yes, um, and I think you went into some more detail as to why he left the book when he did. Well, yeah, you know, I, mean, I don't he, believe it was. He was definitely sold a bill of goods on what he was going to be able to do and what you know what he was going to work with, and they kept changing the story on him at every turn. You know, the whole Legion of Superheroes yep. fiasco. Uh, he wanted to come in and just you know not wipe out everything he didn't want to wipe off uh, all the stuff that he did because he saw that that was going to change things so much but it was a mandate by dc that he's starting from zero yep. and going from there and so you know he had to do all that and of course he takes the blame for that now 
And so, you know, it, 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 it you can't win one way or the other. You just got to, you know, go with it and roll with the punches. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if you heard, I actually did a, uh, uh, a cataloging of how much work Byrne actually put into all of it. And um, <laughs> what, I came, what I came up with was that on this first run, from 86 to 89 or however long that was, including, uh, let's see, that's uh, penciling, inking, writing, and even lettering. You know, adding all those jobs. Because for most people, most creators, they do one job on a book. Right. And yet Byrne was doing writing and penciling and inking in a lot of cases. Um, and so he did multiple jobs on virtually every book he worked. In the in the course of the the two plus years that he was on the book, he did the work of 115 separate issues. Wow! So he did in that way kind of do that hundred issues that he promised himself. But that's <laughs> splitting hairs. And a total overall at his work at DC was about a total of 325 issues worth of work. Yeah, there's very few in that echelon that are writers, pencilers, inkers. Right. Um, you know, typically, like you said, you know, you get strong writers. Mm -hmm. You you can have strong pencilers, and there's some artists that are strong pencilers, and they like to ink their own work, and they're actually good at it. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a lot that want to ink their own work, but they're not the best. And then you have a colorist. So yeah, to, to just handling the writing duties alone is a lot. Right. Um, but uh, don't get too bogged down. Next up is Greg Kirkpatrick. Mm -hmm. The first time I was really into Superman, loved it. Go ahead, We're read the find next a lot one. of that. Read the next one. James Hansen, the run that made me a Burn fan. Excellent. All right. Think a lot. Now this next one is from I'm assuming it's a pseudonym, Dar L. And he definitely looks to be British because he uses O U O U R in his favorite. So um yeah, oh yeah, and I'm, well I'm not seeing aluminium <laughs> in there anywhere, but uh, Sorry. What? Sorry. What's your name? What's your name? Daryl. No, it's Dar L. Dar L. <laughs> it is D A R L. Okay, no dash, but uh, you know. Anyway, he's from the House of L. <laughs> uh, Dar writes, uh, my favorite comic book artist. First DC issue was also Superman's first post-crisis uh, first post-crisis reimagined origin appearance, and my first Superman comic, which I purchased during my very first visit to my hometown's first comic book shop. Before that, I got my books exclusively from the drugstore and newsstands. This is my first, but not my last, variant cover, which I was uber-pumped about. Lots of firsts, for sure, and to this day, I get a bit of a rush and nostalgic when I see this simple, minimalistic, absolutely perfect cover. And that's really, really cool, Dar, but I hate to burst your bubble. His first DC issue was actually Untold Legend of the Batman number 1. Oh, he did that in 1982, several years earlier. But the, you know, still, you can go with this, because that was a lot of firsts. It was. Did, did I just, like, step uh, on him there? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Dar, we love you. Yeah, we do. Write in and let us know. Is that is that really, is it, are you Dar L? Is it Daryl? I don't know. Uh, Robert Gabler? <laughs> I had officially quit comics when Alpha Flight 29 came out. Years later, I was having lunch downtown, and I walked into a comic shop to do some reminiscing. When I saw the cover to Man of Steel number one, my jaw literally dropped. This comic single-handedly started me back on this comic collecting journey. Damn you, Man of Steel. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people are like that. Yep. You know, you talk to any comic book, you know, lover, there's always a, a, a 
a void space, right? Where you threw your hands up and you're like, I'm done. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm not going to come back and read comics anymore. And something, you hear something and it pulls you right back in. Gone! Oh, wait, sorry. Wrong <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, Tony Ingram writes, for me, this was about the first time Superman was ever actually an interesting character. And the book's finally worth reading on a regular basis. I don't know how I feel about that one. Oh God! This next one. This guy's such a hack. I can't believe I can't believe I let that one in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> this one comes from Tiami Elliott. Uh, oh, sorry, Tim Elliott. Seems like only last week I was talking about MOS. Okay. <laughs> I think it was Tim. Well, th- thank you for writing in, Tim. We really, really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Glenn Greenberg writes: Bought it the day it hit the stands. Read it immediately. It gave me that same kind of thrill I got when I was nine years old and watching Superman the movie in theaters for the first time. Well, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Okay, you get to pronounce this next name. Oh, uh, Mehdi Bualasa. Bualasa. All right. Bualasa. That works. Uh, by the way, if we if we mispronounce anyone's name, it's again uh, totally out of love. I don't think Brian Brian or I are great. Um, you know, like some people just have a knack for looking at a name and they can get it right the first time. I do not have that ability at all. <laughs> I try. I try. I try. But, you know, nobody's perfect. This one is, uh, yeah, so Mehdi Buhalasa. Uh, let us know if we mispronounce your name. Just write us, send us a note and put the, the uh, phonetic uh, spelling. Uh, I was tw- 12 or 13. I remember feeling very distraught when I realized FF 293 had been Burns' last issue on FF. So when I saw the cover of Man of Steel later that year, I couldn't believe he had crossed the street to DC. I didn't know much about comics outside of what was on the racks and back issues, so I was shocked and delighted. For some reason, I felt a bit disappointed by the simplistic look he brought to Superman. Still not a big fan to this day, but as usual, I loved what he made uh, him do in the panels. I, I got to stop right there. I, I don't understand what he means by that—the simplistic look. Because I mean, as far as you know, Superman goes. John Byrne introduced a level of cape dynamics that no one, no one had done up to that point, and he really made it dynamic. And as far as the costume goes, it is the costume everybody knows and loves. It is the one Christopher Reeve wore on the stand uh, on, on the screen in the movie. It is the best. Version, yeah, it's, first, best first version of that costume. Superman is unique in that, and, and I'm I'm just saying based on as, as a longtime comic reader, um, Superman seems to hold this special place with his costume that people do not like any changes to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about what happened, you know, with um, the New Fifty Two, right, where they got rid of the the uh, uh, that blue jeans and, and t-shirt. Or you're, ta- okay, uh, you're talking about the, free- the, the yes. Yeah. That was a very specific storytelling element, by the way. That where he was in the jeans and the t-shirt, he was on kind of on the run. Mm-hmm. Um, but people lost their collective minds, you know, about the trunks going away and his belt being different and his boots being the same color as the suit. I mean, it was like, you know, you would think they would have completely, you know, changed the essence of the character just by changing some coloring on the the costume. So I can, I think I can understand where he's coming from. Maybe he wanted Byrne to do more, you know, to change the costume. Um, you know, again, back to that new 52, 
they tried to introduce an element in that costume, which was that it was uh, a Kryptonian fabric, and that's how it was able to withstand, yeah. uh, you know, so much abuse. And people lost their minds about that too. Yeah, you know, like oh, you can't do that to me. So I can understand. I can understand him saying, you know, maybe he wanted Byrne to do more, change more, that kind of thing. Yeah, to me, the the change from his costume to the new one was kind of like um, when I was um, when I was in my twenties, I went to stay with my, my 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 father was working in Turkey, so my my parents were there when I was in college, and I would go there and spend the summers over over there uh, in Ankara. And um, got to experience a bunch of different things. One thing that was really cool was this guy uh, that lived in the same building drove a car that came from England. Hmm. And so the driver's wheel and everything was on the right side of the car instead of what we're accustomed to. And the gear shift was on the left hand instead of the right. To me, that's what this is. This is like, you know, trying to drive and shift and everything with the wrong hands. (laughs) <laughs> it, it it doesn't feel right. It looks the same. It seems the same, but it just is not right. And if there's another metaphor you want to use, that's your decision. But I'm not going to go there. Now, <laughs> but isn't it funny that Batman's you know totally immune to that kind of? I mean, his his well, his uh, colors of his costume have changed. The interior color of his cape. They didn't really know. start doing a lot of changes to Batman's. You know, they they didn't do sweeping changes to Batman's look until eighty Batman eighty nine came out with Michael Keaton. And then you started seeing people use a lot more black and one single piece armor or, you know, body suit that was, you know, that, that, yep. that was that was armored or Kevlar or whatever, you know. But nobody goes off the rails about Batman, no. you know, Mm-mm. getting those changes. Everybody's fine with that. It's okay. Because, you know, but Bat- don't touch I mean, Superman. Yeah, but, I don't mean, touch Batman, Superman. Batman's kind of like Iron Man in that way. You know, Iron Man would sit there and make a different suit for every occasion. Oh, I need to be stealthy, so I'm putting together the stealth suit. I need to work in space, so it's got to be this big, weird thing. i got to, you know, go over here and do this, so i got to go underwater, yep. so i got to have a special... You know, and, and so, you know, Batman can be looked at in the same way. I'm going to be fighting this kind of guy, so I've got to adjust for this. I'm going into a bullet-heavy environment. I'm going to have to wear something yep. that's going to protect me better. Yeah, I can see that. And so, yeah, it wouldn't. it, it, it didn't bother me so much. Uh, but yeah, Superman, you change his costume, and it's kind of like you've just taken the apple out of the apple pie. <laughs> Who got chocolate in my peanut butter? What is this? <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, um, that being said, I guess we should uh, move on to... Okay, this is definitely a pseudonym. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> the name is... But you never know. I'm Fun So. That's TSO, like General So's chicken. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm fun, so. Okay. Anyway, they write, uh, I remember buying it off the racks in my local shop. I only picked up the special version as it had the Metallic Ink logo. And as a kid mm. back then, didn't think to buy both versions. Later went back and bought the regular cover and have a matching set. Loved Burns' run on Superman. Stories read it well. The stories read well. And the art was fantastic. What more could a comic lover want? A beer? A nice woman on your arm <laughs> going, wow, that's really cool. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, do, I do agree with him. I like the, the that's the variant cover, right? That yeah. has the metallic ink. Yeah. You know, the, this is one that kills me. When um, when I when I initially bought them at, the, at uh, Lone Star, um, the chest rip cover uh, for me actually was two covers on one book. 
so I, I it, it had a double cover. You had you had a double cover book. I had a double oh, cover oh, book, oh. and I was like, oh, those are my special gosh. oddities. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And my sister's dog ate the outer cover. Oh so no! Now the, Sorry, that was not the variant cover. That was the main cover. The variant cover was. No, the the, uh, the other one was Clark doing the ch- shirt rip yeah. next to the was it the the the, the Krypton. Kryptonian yeah, spaceship? Yeah, Krypton, yeah. yeah. Um, no, the Krypton. the the, the variant cover was of course just the shirt rip, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the main cover was the shirt rip one. The variant cover was the. Um, oh, okay. Well, hit him further away, but yes, that's that's the one I got too, and I I think that's the iconic cover. Right. Right. Okay. Well, uh, thanks, fun. Or I'm fun, or so, or you know, Krypton. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Krypton. Uh, Dave Great says, "Still better than what DC has churned out for twenty plus years." Ouch. Have you yeah, actually he, read what they've been churning out for the last twenty? years? Clearly, he hasn't. I mean, Jeff I mean, Johns' I, Green Lantern run was amazing. The uh, there's a um, lot of good stuff out there. There's a lot of bad stuff. This is true. And we're the Sinestro Corp Wars, Batman New Fifty Two. But it did seem I like in the last on. last several years that DC was really trying to bury Superman because part of, part part of that I think was that they thought they were going to lose the rights to Superman to this uh, Siegel and Schuster estates um, when they hit the seventy five year mark because of uh, how the public domain rights can shift around. And so there was legal, legal. I don't know that there was legal arguments. Not if you ask but, Disney. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it all worked out equitably in the end. Where I think the courts just basically decided the Siegel and Schuster families need to stop living off their dead relatives and move on. Ouch. Well, I mean, you know, again, it, how do you really feel? <laughs> it, I, I, you know, it's it. It wasn't you know Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster fighting for the rights back because they both already passed on. It was the families of them that still felt that they were owed something, and you know, it, again, it's a, it's a fine line to walk. There, there definitely needs to be better uh, creator rights um, legislation out there. But when Siegel and Schuster first did this and they sold the rights to Superman for a hundred and seventy dollars, they didn't know that Superman was going to be what it was. Nobody did. But the guy that created Victoria's Secret, you know, he sold that off for $5 million. He didn't know what it was going to turn into. The guy that... Um, Billion dollar business. Yeah, the guy that, that, that started Friendster didn't know what he could have turned it into and, you know, wound up basically allowing guys like Pure Evil to destroy him. Now, he wound up making hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, selling his stuff. So he did, you know, cash in eventually. But he definitely showed himself to be kind of a, an anal jerk <laughs> along the way. But then again, any of those millionaires, you're probably going to have an opinion about. So. Help, we've gotten lost in the woods. Help, somebody come <laughs> yeah. find us. All right, uh, Mac Johnson <laughs> writes. too far off the path. <laughs> Mac Johnson writes, I grew up with no one else drawing Superman except Kurt Swan. As sad it was to see Swan retired, I couldn't have been more excited to see John Burns' version. I loved it. And, you know, you know, Mac, the the one thing that's funny in that is there are a lot of people that got really angry and upset at DC's handling of, of you know, letting Kurt Swan go. But I don't know how that I don't know how that went myself. Does anybody know how it actually went? Was he upset to go? Was he ready to retire? Was he, you know, I mean, I know he did other works like Superman, the Earth Stealers, and he had work in Action Comics yeah. Weekly when that was going on. 
it's not like it, it, there was you know work for him to be done. He actually done some work at Marvel for a hot move, uh, ironically doing Gladiator and other characters that uh, were analogs to Superman characters. So it was kind of funny. But you know, I, I think mean, with anything, people, you know, he he may have wanted to change. I don't know if he if he ever publicly commented on it, but he'd been drawing Superman for what like twenty five years, thirty years for thirty years. Yeah, you know, and you know, artistically you. You'd think you'd want to change, but he, you know, he was draw a, something else. He, he was different from the artists that we see today and even 20, 30 years ago. He was different from all those guys. He was more like, you know, Bill Finger and, and Kirby. Hey, did you know 30 years ago was the 90s? Yes, I know. But, but like, you know, the, the, the guys that, that did comic book art in the, the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, they were punching a clock and doing their art. They weren't getting paid a whole lot, you know? Yep. And so it, this was just, you know, what they did day to day. So I don't know that Kurt Swan ever cashed in on his work. Because, you know, fact of the matter was the Superman that he was drawing in the books wasn't the Superman that everybody knew out in the public. They knew Jose Luis Garcia Lopez or they right. knew Bud Collier Superman or they knew George Reeve Superman right. or Christopher Reeve. And so, you know, Kurt Swan was only known amongst the comic book readers. And like when John Byrne took over, he ran into a similar thing. The, there was still going to be the the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, uh, Superman. That was the the public one that they you know had on all the the merchandise that went out and in birthday cards and party favors and all that. Still today, I walked into a uh, Round One arcade um, that was that's at our local Grapevine Mills Mall. And they've got a D, one of those, you know, those games where uh, you've got the coins on the platter and you're trying to get the machine to push them further and the more coins you get, oh, more yeah. to, you know, they've got one of those and it is all about the DC characters and it is all the JLGL uh, characters, Wonder Woman, the Joker, Batman, Superman, Robin, the ones that you saw on all this stuff in the 80s when you were a kid. And, and, you know, that, that was, that was just what you found, you know, and they, they just put out this new machine with all that stuff on there. So no Jim Lee, no, uh, Kurt Swan, no Ross Andrew. It's all just Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Cool. Anyway. Timeless. Yes. You want to get Sean here? Yeah. Sean, uh, Neely. Neil. Neely. Neely. But he's got an E at the end. I know. It's a silent E. Is it? Mm-hmm. Sean, make, write in and let us know. Make, is it is it silent? And it makes the rest of I it a it. long E. <laughs> I have all the issues. Two of issue one due to the variant cover, said to be the very for- first variant in the industry. Mm, I, don't remember. I don't know about that. I have to Google that. I, uh, I've not read them for years, but I remember enjoying them apart from the cheesy line from Batman at the end of number three. Who knows? In another reality, I could have called him friend. I actually had a conversation with Sean on Facebook about this and letting him know it was a paraphrase from the Star Trek episode Balance of Terror because John Byrne happens to be a huge fan of Star Trek, the original series. He, he has basically OCD. He knows every episode by heart, every image of every episode by heart, and every line of every, every episode by heart, even the bad ones. <laughs> anyway... So I, I let Sean know that he goes, he goes, he goes, it's funny because he is a huge Star Trek fan himself. Sean Neal there is. And he did not catch that that line came from Star Trek. So he just thought it was a, a cheesy line that uh, Batman was throwing in to talk about the fact that in before Crisis, Superman and Batman were best friends. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. Joe Boster writes, 
I never cared for Superman until Man of Steel. It was perfection. I was the proud owner of Dr. Smith's comics, and each issue was an instant sellout. More buzz about this than anything else at the time. That's really interesting coming from a guy that owns a shop, and of course you're, you're a retailer yourself. But, I mean, you know, back then, I know that there was this grumbling about John Byrne amongst a lot of comic book shops. Or at least sure. I had heard that there was grumbling about John Byrne from comic book shop owners. That, um, that apparently they held some resentment over him leaving the X-Men and causing a bunch of stir. Hmm. But I, I don't know what the truth is on any of that. I'm very curious about it, but I don't want speculation. I don't want people saying just what they heard. I want to know what actually happened. And all we get now is friend of a friend stories. We don't actually get yeah. the truth. And so my second cousin's brother's uncle. Yes. My cousin's sister's brother. Oh wait. Uh, <laughs> wait what? <laughs> that's an Alabama thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'll, I'll read this next one here because it's really short. Well, before we go too far, uh, yeah. um, they do credit Man of Steel as being the first uh, variant cover because it has two covers drawn by an artist. Hmm. But I, I will one-up that and say there are people that specifically collect price variants of comics. So I, I guess it depends on what your definition of a variant is because um, variants oh, kind of go back. Oh, yeah, there were 30 and 35-cent books. Yep. Uh, the, yep. The, the whole thing with Star Wars. The Star, first Wars, issue of Star Wars, yep. yeah. That's right. Um, and of course, and not long market after new, this, we started seeing those direct market variants, like Justice League issue three, I think it was, issue two or three, where uh, there's two different color covers that went out, and that's the first time that uh, after Man of Steel that uh, I remember seeing that something like that happened. But I never found that variant cover myself because I really wanted to get it back then. Now it's so ridiculously expensive; it's not not worth it to even try. Guess you should have known better, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Murray Kaler writes, uh, doesn't feel that long ago. And you, we mentioned that a little while ago. It's 35 years ago, and it still doesn't feel like it was 35 years ago. And I, part of that, I think, is because Burns' art, uh, being as crisp and as tight as it is, it doesn't look like old comic book art. You know, you can see comic book art from no. the 50s or the 60s, and you can, you can guess the period that it came from because of just how how it meshes with all the other comic book art. When you look at Burns' art, and maybe his Iron Fist art has an older sheen to it, especially the first issue, because the the anchor on the first issue is much more of a gold and silver age anchor. But, sure. it, you know, and, and Burns' anatomy, was he was still figuring out the ins and outs of all the anatomy of his characters. But after that, his artwork, especially with Terry Austin doing the X-Men uh, inks, and, you know, all the work that he did after, it got uh, very timeless because all of his tech still holds up. You don't look at that and go, huh, there's a tape recorder, you know, there's a, you know, right. old technology. It all still looks like cool burn tech. So you can't just sit there and say, oh, this is from the 80s or 90s or whatever. And I think that's part of why it stands up so well. Agree wholeheartedly. Charles Chris Chang updated. I was a big Burn fan from Alpha Flight and Fantastic Four and followed him to DC Comics. When the first issue came out, I went to a special signing by Burn at the Museum of Cartoon Art in Rye Brook, uh, Port Chester, New York. I think Terry Austin or Dick Giordano was also there. Very cool, Charles. You have to yeah. Do you need tell to elaborate? More tell that. more. I want to know yeah. more. Talk about a teaser. Yeah, a tease. Did anybody ask him when will you go back to the X Men? Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Did he, did, he, did he punch anybody out? Yeah. 
Did, uh, he, did he try to kill him? No, just kidding. But, um, <laughs> but you know, again, Terry Austin and Dick Giordano, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of good uh, uh, good stories or information or, or, or something that was relayed there to the to the fans. I was hoping you might, uh, you know, relate a little bit more. You know, if you can, write us, gottagetburned at gmail.com, or come to our Facebook group, uh, Third Degree Burn, and, and tell us about it. We'd really love to hear it. Okay, Daniel Calvisi writes... I think I got eight copies of issue one, expecting it to rocket up in price, and then I'd be a rich genius at age 14. I didn't understand print runs yet. Okay, Daniel, you're the guy that we hate but understand. <laughs> but can no, you, we love on. you. He was a kid. He was he, Obviously, he thought, you know, at, at the age of 14, this was going to happen. And you got to credit someone like that for that kind of forward thinking. But, uh, you know, if you were 19 or 20 or 30 in doing that, you're the guy we hate. <laughs> well, you know what? To each their own, right? Whatever makes you happy collecting. Well, you know, my, my problem with collecting weird... is going in to buy a book and it not being there because someone bought 12 copies. Yeah, but, well, he doesn't say, you know, he did he get them all from the same store? Did he go to multiple stores? Yes, that is kind of a jerk move if you mm-hmm. go in and you clear out the, the rack, right? Um but that, that, that's really on the comic book store to make sure that and that doesn't That happen. always makes me think of that woman that went to the Apple store, and she had like a hundred grand in cash on her, and she was going to buy every <laughs> iPhone. Right. She paid the guy uh, first in line $800 to take his spot. And she gets yeah. in there, and she just thinks she's the smartest thing in the world. Yep. She's going to buy out all the phones and, and resell them for a, a, a mint. And go in there, and they say, I'm sorry, only one phone per customer. <laughs> now you just paid double price for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you didn't you didn't do too bad. I mean, you bought the book for seventy five cents. It's worth you know a little over five dollars now. I mean, it's seven times your investment. You know, of course, you had to hang on to it for thirty five years. Okay, but here's the thing: is that uh, not long after they came out, um, Burns' run on Man of Steel and his run on the Hulk had real high print runs. And uh, when Comic Book John came around, now Comic Book John was this uh, reseller who would tour around. I, I know he toured in Texas, but he'd go to other places and he'd go to these little crap motels like Motel 6 or whatever. And he would rent out the ballroom and he would have hundreds upon hundreds of long boxes circling the ballroom. And basically, any book was a dime. So I would go in there with an empty long box. And I would just scour all the books and, and, you know, pick the ones that I wanted. And I must have gotten like 20 or 30 issues of each issue of the Hulk that he worked on from 315 to 320, 319, whenever that was. Oh, look at you, and, Mr. Cleaning Out the Boxes. But this is, come on, this is surplus. This is different. This is, is it? Then, yeah, it is, definitely. And there's a guy that came right behind you. And this you is like two years, complete, like a year or two he later. Needed complete, he needed one issue of Hulk to complete his run, and there were none left. Well, because of and, and the, the funny part was like all, all those all those issues of Man of Steel I got, all the issues of the Hulk that I got, I sold within a year for five bucks each. Cause, Look at you, little budding, budding businessman. I was just trying to pay my way through college, okay? <laughs> So I mean, but everybody everybody talks about print runs. Let me tell you something: print runs don't mean jack squat, right? Except for a few isolated incidents, you know, cases, right? Take like uh, X Men number one by Jim Lee, right? They printed like millions of copies of that book, right? That that one will be around forever and could be used for, you know, uh, starting your uh, your bonfire pit in your backyard, and we'd still be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, print runs were never as high as they were in the '60s and '70s. Uh, even going into the 80s and early 90s, 
it wasn't until that collector craze started uh, in the early 90s mm-hmm. that print runs got insane. The speculator but they quick, craze. Yeah, yeah, they quickly they quickly fell back down to earth. But that and, was a crash that almost killed the industry. Well, yeah, well, took Marvel out. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of books today that people, you know, had predicted, oh, the print one's going to be huge. No, you know, it's not going to be worth anything. As long as there's demand, the book will be valuable. Yeah. Now, I couldn't find uh, definitive numbers on Man of Steel number one sales. Did you, were you, had you seen anything? Did you know anything? Yeah, you know, this is long before all that. Yeah, because it's really before it, they really started paying a whole lot of attention to the the print runs and numbers, at least as far as I, I know they, you know. Making them public. Yeah. Now, yeah. Um, but even in, like in the 40s, when they were doing Shazam comics and Superman, weren't they doing those oh, yeah. huge print runs, hundreds, hundreds of oh, thousands? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of them. And, you know, that's why I, I just, I get so frustrated when people say, oh, the print runs too big. It's, but it all depends on what happened with those books. Yeah. You know, did people read them and, and then throw them away, like your example of the Shazam comics, um, you know, or Wiz comics? Right, right. Which is where Shazam first started. You know, back then, nobody kept them because they were just dime books. And nobody knew what a collectible was. Nobody knew no. about appreciating value. Right. And they were for kids. And they didn't know what the pop culture, you know, experience was going to be like years later. And then, it was throwaway media. And then in the mid-70s, I think it was... That someone uh, that it was publicized on TV that Action Comics number one had sold for like a hundred thousand dollars, and they're saying this is unprecedented. And then all of a sudden, people started realizing, wow, this this stuff could be worth a whole lot, you know. And people started buying and snatching up and speculating. She Hulk when when the the Savage She Hulk came out, collector's item first issue. And I'll tell you right now, if anything says collector's <laughs> yeah. item on it, it won't be. Yeah. Because they've just, you know, they've printed out too many. And in the industry now, they know that a number one is going to, you know, probably sell X amount just because it's a number one. But, but, but Savage She-Hulk is still worth quite a bit of money. Now it's now it's all come down to condition, mm-hmm. right? A lot of those comic books we just talked about, you know, like the, the early Captain Marvel and Wiz comics, you know, just owning a copy is enough. You know, as long as it's complete, you know, it's worth quite a bit of money. Uh, you start talking about the the end of the Bronze Age going into the Modern Age, then it all comes down to condition. You know, so you could have a Savage She-Hulk that you took off the rack, read once, and bagged and boarded it, but it's got a few dings. Yeah. You know, it's not in that nine category. Savage you know, She-Hulk nobody's number pay- one going right now for what twenty five hundred in a nine point eight. That's that's slabbed, of course. Yeah, and nine point eight is virtually perfect. But a 5.5 slabbed is 225. Holy crap. I told you. And then it's just all about unslabbed, demand. unslabbed, about 100 and what, $100? No, I see them for $20. It's all over the place. It is yeah, all but over you got to dig place. into the you got to dig into the details, you know? So yeah. that $20 copy, you know, could be just uh, not necessarily ragged out, but not one you're going to put in the, on a display. Where do you stand on slabbing? Um, I've got slab comics. I don't I don't slab very many. Um, it's just typically ones that were, you know, really have value to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know I've heard Paul talk about this on Back to the Bends. You know, he hates slab comics. You know, of course, the joke is that they're tombed, uh, you know, because you can't read them now. I think 
from a preservation perspective, I think they're they're an important tool. Uh, you know, again, back to like those Wiz comics, you know, early Justice League, you know, super, you know, early 40s, you know, Superman, stuff like that, Batman. I think it's a great way to preserve, um, you know, a, a, a paper product, yeah. right? Because I, I have bought tons of collections where I've had books from the 40s and I could barely turn the pages on them. Yeah, they're falling apart. I've, I've, I've got, they're falling. yeah, I've, I've had people come call me and say, hey, I've got a collection or come take it. And I'm just like, how? I, I mean, I would just basically have to put all this in a garbage bag and take it home, and hopefully it might retain its cohesiveness enough for me to bag it. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and, and the, you know, the paper has just become so brittle, um, you know, it's hard to even flip through it, you know. So, yes, I think in certain instances, go, by all means, because they do put the that chambered paper in there that helps to reduce any kind of, you know, extra moisture, you know, it's not going to further deteriorate. Um, but the people that go out and go crazy, <laughs> like, you know, a book that came out last week and they, they rushed it to CGC yeah. to have it slabbed. Yeah. Without having any, yeah, yeah, no, I got Yeah, I, I think that's that's the speculator piece, right? That's the, I, I'm just in this to make money, not as a, uh, you know, as someone who enjoys the medium. So, yeah, I'm all for it. If you if you've got comics that you've had for forever and they're special to you, and you don't care what the grade is, yeah, get them slabbed. I mean, it will protect them. Yeah. You want to read this last one here? <clears throat> yeah. Emmett Furrow says, "I had stepped away from comics buying in 1977 as a senior in high school. My money had other places to go, but a grocery store job let me look at some newsstand issues in the intervening years, and then in the summer of 1986, I dove back in." It was a heady time for comics. A lot was going on, but it's still hard to convey how big of a reboot this series was. Filling in holes in the origin story, defining his powers more clearly, setting Lex Luthor up as a real menace and not a clown, and most importantly, redesigning his look for maximum super. Hmm. Agree with all of it. Yeah, I'm still, I'm kind of wondering what they mean by redesigning his look. The only really big change in his look that I can see from the Kurt Swan design to his is the larger physicality of him and then his hair. Yeah. And that's that's really it as far as Superman goes. Everything else is pretty much the same. I mean Cape Dynamics became a much, you know, different thing and that's just an artistic choice, you know. Um, you know, if even if he'd he'd stayed with the shorter, you know, cape that was indestructible, you know, still the Cape Dynamics would be there. Just a little different, that's all. But still, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I you know the Man of Steel series was a lot of fun for us to cover. And you did you were you on either of the shows? I know you had a lot going on recently. Yeah, I was on the first, first one, one, one yeah. two, three. And yep. did you have anything Covered you wanted to book. say about the second group, the the um, Lex Luthor uh, introduction, the Bizarro story, or the uh, origin? Uh, yeah. If I had been on, I would have talked about my disdain for Bizarro. I really don't like that character. Uh, so the least amount of Bizarro <laughs> in my comic is the best amount of Bizarro. The only thing that I didn't bring up in that, and I, I think you wouldn't have cared for it, was that you know the 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 one thing in that Bizarro story, and it was also in the Superboy story that um, uh, Tim and Kirk covered, was that they kept saying, "Well, he's not living." And I guess they they kept reiterating that us just to make sure that we understood it's okay that he can be killed, 
Mm-hmm. You know, that Superman didn't have to hold back because it wasn't living. But it was obviously something that actually had emotions, that, that yep. you know, had a thought process in there somehow. And so, therefore, was it in a way sentient, maybe. It was able to recognize self. And it, it, at some point, Superman saw that it was able to reason because it sat there and thought that it understood how it was curing Lucy. So that, you know, I, I thought that you're really skir- skirting a, a moral tightrope mm-hmm. when you're talking about, you know, wiping this thing out just for the sake of the fact that it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, living organic material. All right. But, you know, that's it. That's all. <laughs> now, we've talked about this many times. You know, I mean, the series as a whole is great. I think the first three are much stronger than the back half. Mm-hmm. But it, it does set the stage for what would come with uh, Byrne and his Superman proper title. And, you know, it's the Superman that I still identify with as my Superman. You know, just from, you know, the way he carries himself, the way he treats others, you know, his power sets, what he can and can't do, uh, you know, his his moral um, grounding. So, you know, taken as a whole, yeah, it's a great read. There are some issues that are stronger than others, and that's okay. I mean, it's pretty typical of any kind of, you know, six-issue series. Yeah, and, and I think you, you kind of touched on something that, that I wasn't able to quantify before, and that is the fact that, because Superman was giving, because Byrne was giving Superman a starting point, that you get to kind of learn a lot of who he is, mm-hmm. you know, through all that and how he came to be and what what it was that that chiseled the the moral fiber and and all that in him. When you look at Superman in the comics before then, you know they didn't really. I mean, they didn't have to touch on the origin story. They did, you know, a minor origin back in the the late thirties. They did a major origin, you know, with Wayne Boring like 10 years later, I believe. And they didn't do much as far as, you know, having to retell Superman's origin story because everybody knew it. And they'd always make comments about it, but they didn't have to, you know, rehash it. And since we got this origin story and then we got to watch, you know, Byrne build on it in all this, we learned a lot more about who he was rather than the way that the common everyday issues were going. When you were reading the Carrie Bates, Kurt Swan stories or the the Conway and Ross Andrews stories that were being done in like action comics, you know, they were shipping a bottle stories where, you know, every issue or yep. every other issue, um, every two issues was a story self-contained and it was Superman doing what he does. But it didn't have to regurgitate all that stuff that, that you know, came from the past or before. You knew everything you needed to know about Superman. Whereas here, we were learning bit by bit, and we were just absorbing all of it to, to figure out who this Superman really is. And what he became is something that we all really, really liked. Well, and that's the conundrum in comics that we still face today, which is um, new people are always coming into the the, uh, the fold, mm-hmm. right, to read comics. Mm-hmm. As others are getting out, right, and then you got longtime readers like us. Um, you know, how do you balance that uh, assumption that everyone coming, you know, to your book knows your character? You know, and Byrne could have totally fell, fell on his face and mm-hmm. made a Superman that nobody liked. It, you know, DC that, would have been in a real pickle. Yeah, well, DC did <laughs> it in later years. They kept coming up with Supermans that people didn't like. Oh yeah. So I mean, the, the electric. Electric. Well, I wasn't even thinking about that one. Um, I was thinking more about the more recent ones. The one that was doing Wonder Woman. Um, 
or <laughs> again the the blue jean Superman, or you know. When, hey, you have to read that story. Yeah, I understand. It's, it's unfairly maligned. I know. And, but, and the thing is, is over the years, I would go and I would pick up three or four issues of the Superman books or whatever, and I would try to read them. And it would just be a slog getting through just those issues. And it would just, like the John Romita Jr. issues, that, that when when he started on, I just... I Don't even get me started. I couldn't get through them. His I really art was couldn't. so I was so... Well, and I wasn't. His, I wasn't. His art was terrible. His art wasn't no. like like it, like we'd seen him in other books, Kick Ass or or anything else they'd been doing recently. He doesn't even like, look like Superman. Yeah, but I mean, Looks I like just couldn't, totally different. I couldn't get into the story. I didn't care about the characters. They weren't compelling. It wasn't enjoyable. So yeah, I can complain about that. But again, you know, it's it's and and I'm someone that that knows a little about Superman, so that when I jump into a Superman book, I should be able to pick up and go. But if someone has no clue about Superman and goes into these books, there's, I mean, I don't understand. They just don't know how to write him that well. Now, that, well, that being I said, I don't it, know how it's going right now. Well, we had Bendis' run on Superman. Um, he's now switched over to, I think he's on Justice League. Let me grab my, my pile here. Yeah. Uh, uh, yep, he was writing Justice League. Uh, yep, up until the most recent one I have, which is 67. Um, you know, it's it's tough because, and we've talked about how, so let's say, you know, de-age yourself and you're a 10-year-old going into a comic book store and you were to pick up, you know, the, the you know, whatever the current Superman issue is. Mm-hmm. You know, as the person behind the counter, you know, would you say, Hey, that's a great place to start. <laughs> you know, if you want to read Superman. But I mean, there's no recap. You, there's no. Yeah, I mean, right? you're picking up in the middle of a, of a decompressed story, so you could be watching an issue uh, all of Clark cleaning, you know, the the valves on his father's tractor, and that could yeah, be the so entire like, issue. Well, and the. The, the one thing I will credit Marvel with is they typically do a, like a, a one page intro mm-hmm. right in the beginning that says, you know, here's who the character is, here's where we're at in the story, and, you know, then you're kind of off on your way. I would like DC to do that. In fact, every comic book company should be doing that now because of, like you said, this decompressed storytelling. Um, they are not new reader friendly, yeah. right? You know, I can guarantee you can go pick up any book off the shelf outside of a number one and you're going to be scratching your head going, what happened in the first issue, or what happened two issues ago, or what is this thing they keep talking about? And there are no marginal you know, notes. There's no editorial comments no, letting you nope. know, check out issue this, check out issue that. Not yeah. typically. Some of the books have them. Marvel will have them. Uh, DC sometimes. But it's not as, as commonplace as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just a, a there should be like a refresher page you know, for, for every comic book that says, here's Superman, this is you know a little paragraph on his origin, and then, you know, you get another paragraph that says, here's where we find our Man of Steel right now, right? He's he's XYZ. Um, you know, if you want to know more, go read these previous issues that set up, you know, the stage for where you're at now. All right. So uh, bring this full circle. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I would tell somebody in that situation. I probably wouldn't tell them to pick up a current and, and, and see, Superman book. That is the, the biggest problem that's killing comic books right now because – the, the age that you're supposed to get those kids at is somewhere between five and eight years old. 
and you sure. suck them in, and then you, that you you know you've got them for X number of years. But if there's no place for them to start off at, then there's no way to hook them and bring them in, and then your reader base gets older and older and eventually dies off. And that is really well, what's the, happening right now. But the comic book industry has moved in that direction, right? You know, over the last you know couple decades, they've they've aged up the books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so to now to the point where you you literally have books that say all ages. But people you have read to all identify. ages as being kitty, and so therefore <laughs> exactly. they don't want to read them because they think, well, they're going to be kitty. I'm sorry, the books I started off reading were all yeah, ages all books, <laughs> and I didn't have any trouble with them. They weren't kitty books as far as I was concerned. You know. Um, yeah, and I think people Big Bart and Superman making stories. a porno that was all ages book. You know. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the latest one that was actually really good, and it's still going, is Batman Scooby-Doo. Batman Scooby-Doo. I, I know, and I yep. wanted to check out the Superman 78, or, or is it Superman 78? Yep. Yeah, I want to yep, check that one out. It looks interesting. Uh, I think the trade for that should be solicited soon. Yeah, because I'm not going to be able to get the individual issues. Now I understand they're kind of, uh, they're, they're selling well and going up, so... Yeah. Well, people people are nostalgic, right? They yeah. want to go back to that time that we're talking about right now with this feedback from Man of Steel. You know, people want to go back to that simpler time in comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, will we ever go back there again? I don't. I don't know. But I think you're you're right on, Brian, when you say that. You know, if if the writers and artists continue to push the envelope of where you know someone should start reading, or what what age would it be appropriate for them to start reading their book? Mm-hmm they're shutting out a whole generation of potential readers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that is uh, where we can go ahead and put a pin in this. And uh, this isn't supposed to be a super long thing. We just wanted to read some comments and here we've gone over an hour. So this will be a a great (laughs) postscript to add to the Halloween episode. And we hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, Once again, if you'd like to provide us feedback, gotta get burned at gmail.com is our email address. And, of course, we can be found on Facebook at the Third Degree Burn Facebook group. Please write us. We're also available on iTunes or, as it's known now, Apple Podcasts. Uh, we really would like to get a five-star review from you because that basically opens the doors up for other people to know about our podcast. So please go out there and do that as soon as you can. I mean, right now. Seriously, seriously, click on over and start up your Apple and do that right now. <laughs> we're, we're waiting. Tapping the foot. Yep. Anyway, thank you for uh, listening to this a uh, little bit extra, and we'll be coming back soon with a brand new episode. Uh, I think uh, I don't know what we're doing because uh, we've got a lot of a lot of things that we're discussing. So uh, uh, I, I got to do a lot of the, a lot of the heavy lifting lately. So hopefully it'll be somebody else's book, but uh, we'll see. I know there's some things we need to get back onto, and some uh, people that we want to bring on the show that have uh, offered to come come forward and talk about things that are rather interesting so uh surprise guest stars yes that would be great and then of course uh we've got we, we've got a promise to bring scott gardner back into the fold sometime soon and i'm looking forward to that maybe even chris honeywell to, to talk about indiana jones the further adventures of indiana jones so uh we'll see anyway uh for third degree burn that is david thompson good night good night and i'm brian hughes and uh, we better do some like scary sounds or something now since this is a Halloween episode. <laughs> Everybody does the Scooby Doo ghost. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Jenkins. <laughs> and I would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for them meddling kids. <laughs> All right, take care. See ya.
Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gotta get burned at gmail.com that's g-o-t-t-a g-e-t-b-y-r-n-e-d at gmail.com drop us a line and tell us how we're doing till next time this has been third degree burn some men aren't looking for anything logical like money they can't be bought bullied reasoned or negotiated with some men just want to watch the world burn <laughs>